All your base are belong to us. Hello. Hello and Hi. welcome to Fake Geek Girls, a podcast looking at nerdy pop culture from both a fan and critical perspective, encouraging things we love to do better. I'm Missy. I'm a writer and uh, I was a bewitched girly, not a spice girl girly of course you you're so pretentious i know i am i'm your digital marketer and i was a spice girl girl um i it was my i think when i look back it was like my second big obsession as a kid my first being the titanic mm-hmm. uh, what about di- do you have a dinosaurs con- yeah but not not like not like those like oh, okay like i knew facts about titanic i could just spit out facts i just really liked dinosaurs that's like, how i, I was with whales dinosaurs. but i could spit straight facts about titanic and spice girls oops um and uh yeah i love the spice girls they're extremely influential and them and uh, mary poppins were my first uh introduction to feminism Mary Poppins being the song about suffragettes. Yeah. Which it took a long time for me to figure out what the fuck what a suffragette, suffragette is. <laughs> yeah. Um, so today we're talking about Spice World, ostensibly. We're actually talking more generally about the Spice Girls with dashes of Spice World in there. A little spice of Spice World, if you will. Um, I think we're just going to have to start off with some brutal honesty here and say that this movie is a fucking mess. <laughs> like, but I love it. It is a fun, enjoyable mess, but it is a mess. So while I'm going to attempt to give a reasonable summary of what happens in this movie, this is not a movie that could be summarized because it's very like, it makes no goddamn sense, compels me though, kind of storytelling. Um, so this is a movie about the Spice Girls. Uh, a lot of things happen to and around the Spice Girls. Uh, a newspaper owner is out to ruin their reputation, which tracks with the actual existence of the UK media. Um, a documentarian is trying to make a film about them without their permission, and their manager is in talks to make an absurd feature film about them. In theory, the plot is about them getting to their first big live show, but that takes a backseat to what we'll call hijinks, uh, meaning things like, you know, meeting aliens in the woods and asking for time off to hang out with their friend who's about to give birth. Um, the Spice Girls eventually walk off the job due to conflicts with their manager and look back on the time before they became a band. Then their friend goes into labor and they go to help, but then realize the doctor is one of the paparazzi. They rush to the theater for their big gig, find a bomb on the bus, etc. They have their concert and then the bomb goes off in the closing credits. What the fuck? I am going to piss some people off right now. Mm-hmm. Um, this just kind of reminds me of when I watched the John Wick movie. There's just like very little plot and just things happen. Things happen. And there's a little plot, but like it doesn't really matter. And people are watching it because they like John Wick. It's about I'm the so vibes. sorry for people who like John Wick. I fucking hated it. It was three got the new one, the four hours. It wasn't four hours. It was four, John Wick four. It was three hours. Anyways, it reminds me of that of like, you're just watching it. I'm not going to speak for everyone who, who watches John Wick. But I feel though when I when I watch Spice World, I'm watching it because it's the Spice Girls, mm-hmm. and nothing really fucking happens. Well, I mean, it's really about the vibes, right? Yeah. Like John Wick is about the vibes. It's about the choreography. It's about the action, yes, etc. Absolutely, Spice World is about movie. the music. It's about the it's about the vibes. Like it's about I th- the music. I think that you can totally make that comparison and not have it be like a like if you, if you deny that you're watching John Wick for specific aspects like the cinematography 
the the cinematography in that movie is gorgeous. Yeah, the the um the choreography, etc. Is that that much different from watching Spice World? Exactly. For characters that you like, for music that you like, for yeah. silly vibes that you like, like they're yeah. just different flavors. Yes, exactly. But as you're reading it, I was like, oh yeah, like John Wick. Yeah, no, I I think that that's totally valid. And when I think about other things, like I think that you can think about this in terms of any genre. Like when yeah. I'm watching The Wicker Man, I'm watching it for weird, you know, occult rituals and. Mm-hmm. It just has more of a plot. It just has more of a plot to it. Um, yeah, I like genre is genre, you know. Genre is genre, and deep, what genre is genre. Deep, deep thoughts here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With fake geek girls, that's true. So let's talk about audience. Um, let's. I don't think there's any secret about the Spice Girls and Spice World being media generally considered to be quote unquote for girls, right? We yeah. know who the target audience for this is. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody who enjoyed Spice Girls or Spice World is a girl. It just means that the target audience, the people that they were trying to get, were girls. Uh, Not women, but girls specifically. Young female audiences generally considered, especially in the 90s, to be both powerful as consumers and not so bright. Um, This isn't exclusive to the 90s. You can listen to our Twilight episodes to hear more about how people feel about young girl audiences and their susceptibility to quote unquote bad messaging. Uh, But I think in the 90s, we had the beginnings of the transition to third wave feminism, which for some actually manifested as post feminism or the belief that the goals of feminism had already been achieved. That's wild. Yeah. How do they get to that? It's still popular. Like some people still really feel this way. I guess that's what some people are like racism's over. Yeah. Yeah. was, Was elected. Yeah, very similar. Um, We'll talk more about feminism and the Spice Girls relationship to it later in the episode, but I do want to take a moment to discuss the relationship between third wave feminism, which was coming to prominence in the 90s, post-feminism, and the girl power that the Spice Girls espouse in Spice World and elsewhere. Whew, that was a long sentence. Yeah, it was. Uh, we talked in the Practical Magic episode about waves of feminism, if you want a more in-depth explanation. But in case you haven't listened to that one, third wave feminism began in the 90s and started to push back on the second wave notion that if you didn't have a career, you were setting feminism back. Because the having a career was a big part of second wave feminism. What wave are we in now? Four? Fourth. Okay. Yeah. Um, the third wave like also emo. <laughs> the third wave also began to embrace Kimberly Crenshaw's concept of intersectionality, which encouraged people to consider the ways that marginalizations intersect. So the unique experience of being a black woman or a trans woman or a poor queer man, for example, those are those are intersections. Um, for those that embraced the third wave, as we know from the con- continued existence of trans exclusionary radical feminists and conservative feminism, which we will discuss later. Um, for those that embrace the third wave, intersectionality led to a more diverse and inclusive feminism. But not everybody accepted the third wave. Not everybody accepted intersectionality. Oh, yeah. People still very vehemently... TERFs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> TERFs are stuck. It's because they're bad people. So <laughs> they can get stuck in hell. Yeah. It's... Yeah. People still... People, d- not every feminist embrace intersectionality. And we'll talk more... Like, I, I wrote the outline, so it's more about my specific... <laughs> views on feminism but um i mean spoiler alert for our own podcast i don't think that you can be a feminist and have these kind of views yeah but other people disagree with me and i'm not wrong (laughs) i'm not but also like i'm not in charge of feminism right like i can't i'm not the god of feminism i can't say this is or isn't feminist i can only say my feminism does not yeah. include trans-exclusionary radical fe- radical feminists. They're not feminists to me. No, they're not. Um, it's complicated because there is no like president of feminism, right? There's no nobody to say. <laughs> As there shouldn't be. No, there's nobody to say like yes, this is feminist. No, this isn't feminist. But 
Have what you- we can say for certain is that waves of feminism exist and some people do not agree with aspects of later waves of feminism but still consider themselves feminists. Whether they're feminists or not, that is the true thing. Maybe you talk about this later and I missed it, but I was I was watching the um contrapoints about JK Rowling uh-huh. and she started talking about how turfs are now turning more obviously conservative and they're mm-hmm. they're turning away from the word feminist uh, what did they call themselves now what do they like to be called now no, i'm not sure i can't remember what it was but the lingo um i think feminist was taken out of it and it's because one of the people who's like the most like gung-ho pushing things through it's a very terrible conservative woman I who doesn't that. believe in feminism and jk rowling is like yeah i love this person mm-hmm. oh god she's horrible anyways yeah um so post-feminism uh, can be traced as far back as 1919, uh, not by name, more so that by winning the right to vote, white women decided that there were no more divisions in society, which was demonstrably false, given that women of color did not yet have the right to vote. Um, so again, post-feminism can be traced back as far as 1919, but the form of it we'll be discussing most arose most here in this podcast arose in the 1980s and 90s. It was in part a backlash to second wave feminism, which emphasized the need for women to have a career and independence from men in their lives. Um, post-feminism covers a number of ideologies, but we're going to be focusing mostly on the idea that the goals of feminism have been achieved and that feminism is therefore no longer relevant to the modern woman. Since the 1980s, the term has mostly been applied to young women who are said to benefit from the gains of feminism without trying to push for any further change. Uh, some people suggest that post-feminism is just a continuation of second wave feminism. I have a question. Uh-huh. Never mind. <laughs> I just realized the answer. What was it? Well, maybe somebody else has this question. Well, you literally answered it and then I remember what what makes, I guess, I guess I'll ask this way. What separates third wave from second wave? So second wave was about career what makes- it was about, i mean it was about a lot of things but it was kind of about like one of the big ones was like financial independence so the ability was, to be financially independent what would be third then third is a lot of intersectionality um sex workers rights actually that might be more fourth wave yeah i'm curious what, no that was my next question is what's fourth um fourth is generally speaking more i think more intersectional more embracing of like sex, sex workers rights yeah. and that kind of thing i'm not 100 percent up on the difference between third and fourth wave i would imagine second wave for sure and maybe third wave are very anti-sex work right well second wave for sure third wave was kind of when i started learning more about feminism and the feminism i was learning about at that time was pro-sex work okay but that doesn't necessarily mean that the third wave itself was pro-sex work that was just when i was learning about it and what i was learning about so my understanding like like i said i like the time when i was learning about feminism it included like sex workers rights and the validity of sex work that may not be true for the entire third wave which is why I have, which is why I struggle, I think, sometimes to distinguish between the third wave and the fourth wave, because to me, they kind of overlapped just based on like where I was learning and who I was learning from. Um, but there are more clear outlines if you really dive into it, because third wave started, I want to say, in the early 2000s, and I wasn't learning about feminism in like concrete terms until like the 2010s, maybe. I looked it up really quickly just to get from the second to the third. And this said, this, the very first card, <laughs> info card on Google. The key difference between the second and the third wave feminism is that the first wave involved female suffragette. The first wave involved female suffragettes while the second wave involved reproductive rights and the third wave involved female heteronormity. Interesting. I don't know if I 
The reproductive rights makes total sense. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, we can. I'm gonna look up more later. Okay. Um. There's a so the the before we got onto this. Yeah. We, we were talking. It's okay. The we were talking about um post feminism and what it actually is. Some people apply it to. Uh, specifically to young women who are said to benefit from the gains of feminism without trying to push for further change. Some people suggest that post-feminism is actually just a continuation of second wave feminism, like a, like a separate branch. Um, there's a lot of complexity to how post-feminism manifests and how people think about it, especially in pop culture. Uh, for example, the 90s had a wave of woman-focused TV shows that did do a lot to showcase female independence in the modern era, but many of them emphasized white, middle, or upper-class women and still focus heavily on relationships with men as a source of fulfillment, such as things like Sex in the City, popular romance novels, rom-coms, even something like Buffy the Vampire Slayer oh, to an extent, sure. right? Especially since it's written by men. <laughs> yeah. Um, post-feminism also has a place in advertising where women's liberation is tied to femininity and buying power. So, like, for example, imagine an ad that encourages women to treat themselves to diamonds rather than relying on a man to buy them for her. This is perfect for capitalism. Yeah, exactly. Um, The Spice Girls were famous for promoting the idea of girl power, which was basically the notion that girls are powerful and capable and independent. Girl power occupies a very non-threatening feminist stance. Um, It's affirming without being challenging, challenging, and it's targeted specifically at a youthful audience. Like, note the use of girl rather than woman or some other synonym. It it feels like it plays really into you can be anything you want when you grow up. Yeah. What the fuck does that mean? Yeah. (laughs) But also, I can be anything I want to be. I wanted to be a panther, and I can't. (laughs) And that sucks. That doesn't make girl power bad or useless because even today 30 years later we still have a crisis of self-esteem issues among young girls right and i don't know that we can expect the more boundary pushing feminism from a mainstream pop group but you do kind of have to wonder whether there was any kind of limitation placed on what was acceptable for a pop group to be telling their young female audience especially in the 90s when there was some skepticism over whether feminism was even necessary anymore um so this is a quote from interrogating girl power girlhood popular media and post-feminism by michelle s bay who writes, as reproduced in girl power, this dynamic has a liberating aspect. That is, in girl power, a well-groomed sexual feminine body is a site of liberation by which girls attract boys' attention, but use their freedom to choose what they desire. This view of feminine practice as liberation is marked by girls' self-centered attitudes and use of autonomous decision-making about the female body and sexuality for the sake of their own pleasure. Hence, girl power sends the message that the par paramount sends the message that the paramount importance of sexualized appearance and style in girl power is to encourage contemporary girls to take care of the self as a major part of self-improvement. Such self-improvement is believed to provide girls with the power that comes from achieving social distinction and attracting male attention. Thus, the male's objectification of the female body is no longer related to the female's powerless, subordinated position. Rather, the objectified girl as empowering subject rhetoric shatters the earlier hierarchical... God, I have so much trouble with this word. Hierarchical? Hierarchical. Sounds right. Hierarchical. Hierarchical. Yes, there we go. Yeah, that's it. You get it. You added the kegels to make it feminist. (laughs) The hierarchical binary construction of gender. As a result, the ideal for the post-feminine body is a construction of gender that is liberated through beautifying practices. So what Bay is suggesting here is that girl power, especially the kind of girl power espoused by the Spice Girls, which was heavily commercialized and intertwined with the purchase of quote unquote girly commercial or girly products that included cosmetics, clothes, etc., generally considered to be for making more uh, making women more appealing to men. However, in the third wave or post-feminist decade of the 90s, women's liberation had come far enough, especially with birth control in the second wave, 
that women could now adorn themselves as they liked to attract male attention, but use their liberation to choose whatever they wanted, whether that was attention from a specific person or no attention at all, essentially centering their own pleasure rather than the pleasures of others. This is difficult. Is that, is that, are we on the, on the same page so far? Yes, it okay. is. And it makes sense because, it, well, like, when, when you're reading it, all I think of is how this almost was like, I know we talk about how capitalism uses to, uses anything to make money from, but what I'm thinking is like, this spiraled into, it feels as though, over-sexualized women to girls. Mm-hmm. Spice Girls are sexualized, but not they're not like over-sexualized. They don't mm-hmm. need to be pure. They don't need to be wearing teeny, they're wearing teeny tiny outfits, but not the same as like Britney Spears. Right. So when I read this and I feel like, oh, that's really, like that's obviously important. But then it was <laughs> so bastardized mm-hmm. and taken and used against women to sexualize young women specifically. And that's sad. There's a... There's a difference in you can dress however you want and you should dress this way. Yeah, I think of it like you can dress however you want. You can choose between this low rise or this low rise or this (laughs) crop top. Like that's how I kind of see it of like you can dress however you want. I'm seeing a lot of this kind of talk like um, with parents and um they're they're uh g- little girls mm-hmm. and the difference between shorts for them and shorts for boys and like you you're letting us girls say like it's okay to wear these really short shorts and yes it's okay but like why are they so different so that's why mm-hmm. it's on my mind um bay also argues that the emphasis on appearance and girl power prioritizes self-improvement and self-care as important for the self rather than for the sake of others so objectification no longer results from a lack of power and that this practice is liberating so the the point here is that when I go and get my nails done, it is, which I don't do. I don't know why that was my example. but It's a good example. If I go and get my nails done, it's because I want to have my nails done. I like the way having my nails done makes me feel, not because I am trying to appeal to a man. Now that gets, there's a lot of wrinkles there, right? Mm-hmm. Why does it feel good to me to have my nails like that way? Is it because I live in a patriarchal society? You know, I think lots of questions. A way that like a modernization of this that does work for me is when women do things that are so ridiculous, but they still like, like giant lashes. Like mm-hmm. I don't think giant lashes are for men to be like, Oh, I love her giant lashes or those really, really, I mean, some men obviously really, really long nails, like the pointed ones. Yeah. The pointed ones. Like, is that because men like it or is it because it looks fucking cool? Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like it's taken that and pushed it so far. And I, cause I see online all the time, like, men don't find that attractive. Men don't find that attractive. And some people are like, good, I'll wear it more. Yeah. But- <laughs> Once, like, I don't. I don't post that much to Pinterest, but I posted like a cool like lipstick look once that had like this like weird kind of almost gravelly texture to mm-hmm. it. I don't even know how he found it, but some man commented oh my God. on it and was like, no man would want to kiss that. And I'm like, don't because it's going to get ruined. I don't give a fuck. Like, who are you, sir? <laughs> yeah. And like the oversized pants that were really popular kind of going out now, but like those those mom jeans and stuff. Yeah. Like this over exaggeration of this. I feel like I'm sure you could make some connection of like this being pushed back. Yeah. Well, like for another example, I'm rewatching a court of fart. A court, a court of fart. A court of fart. A court of fay and flowers. The uh, uh, Dimension 20 series right now. And um, I love, 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 love uh, Abria's lipstick looks mm-hmm. on it. And like the moss crouch She's and the so moss good. eyebrows. She looks She's so good. Incredible. Incredible. 
she's adorning herself in a way that is not necessarily for male attention, right? Like, just yeah. because she is using makeup, she is using cosmetics and that kind of stuff, doesn't mean it's for male attention. Because I think if she were to wear that down the street, people would be like, hey, what the fuck? Yeah. Whereas some people would be like, hey... <laughs> what the fuck what the fuck <laughs> and it would um, probably be a lot of women <laughs> yeah um so bay pushes back on some of these ideas throughout the essay so i don't want to suggest that she 100 percent believes all of this all of the time or at least not by my reading um i think it's an interesting read and i think it tracks with how people were likely thinking about this issue in the 90s i don't think it completely tracks for me though beauty standards are in many ways defined by patriarchy mm-hmm. I think we can resist those playfully. In the past, we've talked about wearing lipstick in non-traditional colors, for example, um, while still adorning ourselves for our own confidence. And there are beauty standards that appeal to women who love women rather than to men, right? There are specific fashion styles and that kind of thing within, you know, the lesbian community or bisexual women or, you know, any any variation thereof. Like, uh, Like, lesbians and other people who love women women who love women are going to be influenced to some degree by patriarchy, but that doesn't mean that they are dressing for male attention. You know, am I making that clear enough? Yes. Okay. I I think you are, I guess here's the, here's, here's where I could give, do you have an example of something that is more, I won't say coded, but like something that a woman who loves another woman is like, oh, that's that's how I know. That's how I know you want me. Well, I mean, there's the entire subculture of, and this is not a word I'd normally use, but it is a, a, a oh. subculture. There's the entire dyke subculture, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's not meant to appeal to men. and But it is meant to appeal to certain women who love women. Okay. Not trying to say that, um, that dykes are patriarchal that no 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 that would be a ridiculous thing to say but what i'm what i'm trying to say is that when it comes to beauty standards they're always going to be informed by the world in which we live and it is hard to escape that even if it doesn't impact you know an individual does that make sense yes okay it does it's unfortunate truth yeah um uh, but while I think that Bay makes some great points here that make the idea of consumerist girl power liberatory in context, I don't think it goes much further than that for me. Um, so this is a quote from Too Much of Something is Bad Enough, Success and Excess in Spice World by Cynthia Fuchs. Um, you can read the entirety of Spice World, which has grossed some $77 million worldwide, as an ongoing tongue-in-cheek answer to the critics of the Spice Girls' artifice. The film opens with a performance that is being recorded. Under the credits, the girls perform too much. Scary looks into the camera and sings love is blind as far as the eye can see see an example of the group's more arcane not to say inane lyrics and yet the extent of seeing and the power of surveillance are primary themes in the film to come as the girls sing the camera cuts between shots of them together and singing and singly to a control room full of video monitors viewed from behind the shoulders and heads of mostly male producers and sound mixers all business at the end of the number the camera shows that the girls are performing for a crowd of mostly girls who clap and cheer positioned in the frame between the Spice Girls on stage and Clifford, who is standing behind the booth's glass wall. Um, One of the feminist talking points about the Spice Girls and the reading of them as detrimental to the advances of feminism is that while they talk and sing about girl power to an audience of young girls, those same young girls aren't going to realize that 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 message is manufactured and controlled by men. The movie actually points quite clearly to this. 
Uh, a number of men follow, document, and attempt to control the Spice Girls, but they just keep on living their lives despite it all. What um, else are you going to do? I know. Uh, I think there's a number of readings we can take from this. The Spice Girls, if they were involved in the writing of this movie, which it seems that to some degree they were as far as like ad-libbing and stuff, but I'm I'm not 100% on that. I would assume, especially since their characters are that to some extent, yeah. yeah. Them. Um, so the Spice Girls you know, are to some degree aware of being manufactured by men and are not bothered by that because they believe in their mission and message. They're also aware of how they're viewed as anti-feminist by others, and they subvert that to some degree by showing their liberation despite it. Um, Is it really liberation? Yeah. It's very complicated. Mm -hmm. But by drawing attention to how much of their image is constructed and controlled by men, maybe they're just poking fun at their own constructedness. After all, though a lot of the men in the movie have nefarious purposes, they never seemed threatened. Like, the the Spice Girls never seem threatened by any of this. They almost seem indifferent. Yeah. In fact, the Spice Girls often seem naive or incapable of doing things on their own, despite the championing of girl power. So maybe it's actually reinforcing the issue. Um, or maybe drawing attention to it is meant as a sort of warning. Despite their independence and capability, they're still subject to the domination of men. It's all the above. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of readings to take away here, which is really interesting. The problem is, I think, a lack of clarity because the movie is not particularly interested in any one thing. It's interested in being fun and silly, which doesn't necessarily make it bad. It just doesn't help clarify some of the conflicting you know, emotions that you might have around the Spice Girls and about Spice World in particular. But they didn't need to make those clarifications because they assumed the young audience was too stupid to get it. To be fair, I was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I was like, cool aliens and Spice Girls. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I wasn't stupid, obviously, but yeah. they, but there's no way for them to have given me an outlet to, be, to question more. Well, there is a way. They just didn't yeah, do yeah, it. Yeah. They didn't provide a way. Yeah, they no. didn't. They weren't interested in that. This is a quote from Girl Culture, Revenge, and Global Capitalism, Cyber Girls, Riot Girls, Spice Girls by Catherine Driscoll, who writes, Popular recognition of a girl audience for mass culture usually leads to more or less direct claims that girls are easily deluded. In discussions of the Spice Girls, enough people refer to this delusion in enough forums that it seems worth asking why Spice Girls fandom is exemplary of delusion, even compared to bigger market conformities, usually the criteria provided, like wearing Nike or drinking Coke. This delusion is, in fact, an attribution that draws weight from being perceived as a girl thing. So the point Driscoll is making here is really important. Much like we saw with Twilight, there's this idea that because the audience is primarily young girls, and I want to I want to be clear here, the the modifiers are both young and girl. Like we're talking about young and we're talking about girl. Not youngs and girls. Yeah. So because the audience is primarily young girls, there's the additional potential for these messages to have detrimental effect. Because the Spice Girls are a manufactured band. We'll talk more about that in a bit. Um, And because they are as much a commercial product as an artistic act, people believed, rightly or wrongly, that the audience was essentially being manipulated into purchasing Spice Girls branded items, as well as the ideals of the band. Not because they really liked or wanted those things, but because young girls are impressionable. And this is why Josie and the Pussycats is a perfect movie. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) All this to say. Mm -hmm. And like, sure, that's a valid concern because we know that young girls are impressionable. We know that commercial art like the Spice Girls, which they are, whatever their own beliefs beliefs may be, they are still commercial art. Um, It's not a commercial, it's art. (laughs) We know that commercial art like the Spice Girls is meant to sell things, right? Yes, I would like to put in this extra little tidbit for you to to hit that home. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was young, loving the Spice Girls, they sold a lot of candy. Specifically lollipops. Mm-hmm. So what did I do? The I chupa chups. I bought boxes of them and fucking sold them at school. <laughs> 
Entrepreneur. Entrepreneur. I think I might have eventually gotten That's in trouble. girl power, baby. That's girl power. I think it was my dad's idea, which makes it even more like apt. But I think I may have gotten in trouble for it. Mm. But um, yeah, I, I think I sold them for like a dollar and you get the whole box for like 10 bucks and there's 20 of them in there. That's so funny. I don't know if I, I'm sure I kept the money. I can't imagine. Anyways, but that's a perfect example. Yeah. Of me being the capitalist. <laughs> Um, so again, we know that commercial, like the Spice Girls, uh, is meant to sell things. But why the emphasis on the Spice Girls as opposed to, say, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or something more targeted at young boys? We know the answer, right? Um, the same reason that people freaked out over Twilight selling unrealistic and harmful romance to teen girls, but nobody freaked out to that degree over Transformers. There's a concern that girls are uniquely impressionable in a way that boys are not. They're just extra dumb. Yeah. And honestly, I wonder, too, if the girl power message is part of the concern. On the one hand, it is, so, it is sort of a watered-down feminism that doesn't really challenge much, right? On but also, the, like, they're talking to children. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> On the other, it's still emphasizing female empowerment. It's a message that is, that is actually capable of pissing everybody off. <laughs> like, everybody can be mad at girl power. It was really important to me as a yeah. kid. But I would also add to that in the fact that I had a lot of strong women around me that were also incredibly influential. Um, so like all of that combined was really important to me. So uh, Spice Girls were important to me. And then it was emphasized by my, my family members, like hitting home. Yes, girl power. Like I remember having a conversation with my aunt of being like, you have power in being a girl. Mm-hmm. Like that's important. So like, it's hard to say if that alone uh, was like as powerful as it was or right. it probably was those two things, but it was still extremely influential on me. Yeah. Like, I wonder if this would, if there would be less backlash to the whole girl power thing if this wasn't such a PG level political statement. They mentioned feminism by name. I can see the argument people would make for indoctrination. And I wonder if the pushback is specifically because the audience was young girls who are seen as less intelligent and capable of thinking for themselves. When you say indoctrination, do you mean indoctrination of um, young girls to not be feminist? Either way. Because okay. I think, like I said, everybody can be mad about this message. I can be mad that it's not radical enough. I can be mad that it's too radical. Okay. Like, there's there's, there's a little something for everybody here to be mad about. And that's what makes it a great capitalistic scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, you have anything else to say about audience? Nope. Cool. I was it. You, it was you. You were the audience. I do want to just, like, briefly shout out the most 90s thing that has ever happened to me, which is that I went... This was like a really, this is a really defining moment in my life that I'm going to share with all of you. I got invited when I was in third grade to a sleepover at a fourth grade (laughs) girl's house who, in retrospect, I now realize I had a crush on. Um, (laughs) She invited me to her sleepover. And at this sleepover, we drank Surge and danced around the hot tub to the Spice Girls. And then we watched the movie Blade. It was the single most 90s thing that has ever happened. Very influential. So influential. I, my first concert was Spice Girls and my dad took me, but it was right after Jerry left. So I only saw four of them, mm. but it was really fun still. Nice. Um, let's talk about authenticity now that I put another ice cube in my mouth. Love it. It's very authentic of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It You're is. just like really playing into it. The real me is always has an ice cube in her mouth. So we've talked about the Spice Girls as manufactured, but we need to be clear here. Pretty much every pop act is to some degree manufactured. Authenticity is a concept worthy of an entire episode itself because it is so murky, right? It's Yeah, it's very interesting. We've been talking a lot about it with Taylor Swift. Yeah, yeah, for sure. What is an authentic artistic act when we know that performance is part of the equation? What is authenticity when talking about art created for public consumption? 
I would argue, unsurprisingly, that true authenticity is impossible in art created for public consumption, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, right? I think that when we're talking about art created for public consumption, to some degree, it's it's not going to be fully authentic. If you can do fully authentic art for public consumption, more power to you. Well, I know there's a little audience in my head at all times. It's like, I think also is it's important to have that barrier because if you're so authentic, you're giving people you don't know all of you Mm -hmm. and that can be dangerous. Mm -hmm. Um, I love to have little secrets. I like, this is the silliest thing, but like, I I don't, I'm the person I'm a, like, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a public figure. Right. But like, I do this podcast, which is, personable between me and my best friend yeah it's made for public consumption i'm talking to my best friend you can easily get the impression that you know me really well mm-hmm. i delight in the things that people <laughs> don't know about me i That's love so interesting i love to have a little secret and just to know that there's something that somebody doesn't know about me That's it just so interesting it makes me feel like i'm protecting a part of myself that just isn't accept- ex- uh, accessible to others see and like this is part of the reason i could never be famous because i don't like that mm. i don't like the secrets i keep are of shame <laughs> <laughs> well i mean some of my secrets are shame sure too, but, but like but like your secret could also be like you love to drink celery juice at four o'clock every day mm-hmm. or four a.m every day um and i'm like i wouldn't keep that as a secret I'd yeah be like, i'm a freak i'm a freak, <laughs> I'm a freak who drinks celery Interesting. juice um sorry why are we talking about that authenticity uh, being uh, mm. not being authentic is sometimes important. I know, I know that the the self that I present on this podcast, for example, the self that I present is pretty true to myself. Mm-hmm. There are things I don't talk about that on this podcast yes. for very specific reasons. Because, and yes. I was talking again. I'm not going to talk about it specifically because I would be betraying my point here. But there's something I was talking about this week with Mary, where I was like, <laughs> I can only say this to you because you know it's in my heart, right? And I mean that. Like, like I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. You you know what's in my heart. I can't just say that because not everybody knows. Especially online. Yeah. Not everybody knows what's happening in my mind and, and all Or the that, context you know? that of like your life that right. that brings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I would say that. There are things that I would not say <laughs> in public that I would feel safe saying to you. Yeah. Like the, if you get the unedited versions, you may have also heard, we'll talk about that after the podcast or, <laughs> or ask me about this after the podcast. Yeah. 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 Like there, there are parts of ourselves in, in, you know, we could, we could argue about this podcast as art or whatever, but like there are parts of ourselves that we don't present for public consumption. And that does to some degree make us inauthentic, right? I think yeah. any anything produced for public consumption is going to be guarded to some extent or it's going to be comprised of artifice to some degree. That doesn't mean that it's bad or that that level of inauthenticity like um, takes away from from what authenticity is there. We should just be aware that like the self I present on this podcast is not my full and complete self. You like... You don't have access to that. Not even Mary has full access to that because I'm a little goblin with secrets and I just like them. Yeah, it's weird. I know. I'm just... I have like no secrets. (laughs) I live a rather boring life though. (laughs) I mean, I do too. I'll say this and I'll make you all wonder. I am harboring one secret right now that Missy knows (laughs) and none of you will. Well, you will. She's a dragon. I am a dragon. I eat celery juice. (laughs) She drinks celery juice at 4 p.m. every day. It's so fucking weird. Um, yeah, like that's, that's what I mean is that like any kind of thing for public consumption 
especially when it involves a persona, is going to necessarily hold something back. And it even gets to the point of like, authenticity can be used as a oh absolutely point. i mean i think Lindsay ellis has a really great video really? about this um from a few years ago i think that a lot of um influencers use this mm-hmm. um good really good ones and again i'm sorry taylor swift keeps coming up oh, but God, taylor, yeah. swift, taylor swift's like dependence on authenticity actually bothers me mm-hmm. and we've talked about it before i don't like the way that she like uses the easter eggs and like the like it freaks me out it freaks me right out yeah like the fact that she uh brought literal fans to her actual home and played and played them uh in 1989 before it came out <laughs> literal f- or the fact that she and like this is good that she like reached out to like big fans and did things like pay off their tuition and things like that like that's really good and fun for them but like it's it, it's an off it's not authentic. who is it for yeah right? she's like- bringing them to her house but she's bringing them to her house of five. <laughs> yeah. So um, there are some funny stories about that, though. Like someone stole some soap. And so she decided to send all of them soap. Oh, my God. Something like that. But yeah, she is master class of making her fan base feel like they like she's authentic and they know her and they are friends with her. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't always work out for her yeah but in the long run it has Mm -hmm. it has and it probably will continue to be she's so fucking good at it yep um but we're not talking about all art here we're talking about a pop girl group brought together by essentially a classified ad and we're talking about a movie about that pop girl group created by a bunch of men to sell the band to sell the movie to sell the upcoming album and to sell the merchandise to an audience of teen girls right and it worked and it worked. We're talking about a fourth wall breaking movie in which the pop girl group seems unapologetically themselves despite the obvious constructedness of their identities and the fictional and non-fictional world they inhabit. It gets even murkier than usual quite quickly. Um, this is a quote from crew members explain why Spice World is still so weird 20 years on, which is by Rachel Hoden. Spice World certainly does not have the best reputation among film buffs, but it also never purported to be something it's not. Before the movie came out, health ass, health, Heath, Heath, <laughs> I have drank three quarters of this cup of coffee and I'm already feeling it. I'm so sorry to everybody. This is why I've completely cut out coffee is because it does that. I don't. Normally it's not this. What like what is in this? What is in this? What is in this? Cookies. Cookies. That's what did it. Um, Sorry. Before the movie came out, Heath asked Mel B why they decided to make a movie where there are, quote, far more terrible when there are, quote, far more terrible pop star films than good ones, unquote. Because, she responds, after sticking a bread roll down her shirt, I've got a third tit. And therein lies the genius of Spice World and the marketing around it. The movie has a blast without taking itself too seriously. It's because it's so inexplicably brainless that it's also so fascinating and engrossing. A movie so bad that, dare I say it, it's actually quite good. The reason I put this quote that is not in any way an interpretation of the film here is because I love this response. Mel B was basically asked to justify the existence of the film that she stars in a film that is as much about her as a person as it is about the persona she inhabits as scary spice. And she answers with complete and utter nonsense, which setting aside the fact that Mel B didn't write the movie is really just the movie in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. Why make a movie about the spice girls when most pop star movies are bad because she's got a third tit. Or to interpret a statement that maybe isn't meant to be interpreted, because what she and the Spice Girls have isn't something that audiences have seen before. It's strange and weird and surprising and a little off-putting, even as it's enticing. And I think that actually perfectly summarizes the movie. It does. Is that what Mel B meant in this moment? I have no fucking idea. 
But there is an authenticity to that very strange answer to an annoying question. She could have said because we're trying to inspire girls of all ages or because we wanted to or because it would be fun. But she instead gave a super weird answer that had nothing to do with the question, which is to a certain degree a more authentic answer than you might expect from someone on the PR junket for a movie about a manufactured pop girl group. Yeah. Like that answer of because I've got a third tit is the single greatest answer to that question. You or can any imagine. question. Or any question. I think all questions should be answered with because I've got a third tit. Time for Why are you dead? Because I have a third tit. Mm-hmm. Why are you in a car? Because I have a third tit. Mm-hmm. Why do you go to school? How are you today? I've got a third I've tit. I've got a third tit. Um, are you tired? I've got a third tit. <laughs> um, this is a quote from Spice World. It's a brilliant movie. It might even be better than A Hard Day's Night by Auntie Donahue. While A Hard Day's Night does a great job of laughing at journalists in mass, Spice World one-ups the premise with the introduction of a tabloid owner as a legitimate and singular villain. So as an undercover reporter begins following the group and taking their quotes out of context, we get not only a character to root against, but a better understanding of the ridiculousness that fuels particular publications. Here's looking at you, Daily Mail. We also see the way that media misunderstandings can thoroughly fuck up more than a few people's lives. I wouldn't go so far as to say this movie is sophisticated. But I think to write it off as only silly hijinks would be a mistake. Though the Spice Girls were at the very beginning of their career, or not the very beginning, but at the beginning of their career, um, they were absolutely already subject to public scrutiny and press harassment. Um, This is a big issue in the UK with tabloids like the Mirror and the Daily Mail, which run sensationalist and damaging quote unquote news and opinion pieces. And they routinely get sued for them like over and over again. But they be- have the best lawyers. Yeah. Um, but being sued for something doesn't erase it from the public consciousness. So if the Daily Mail runs an article saying Mel B has a third tit, a good number of people are going to recall seeing it in print and therefore that that rumor is true. And the danger of, of publications like that. Right. And that's a benign rumor. Now, imagine if it ran something really defamatory. It, defamatory. Defamatory? Defamatory, I think. Whatever defamation um if you know even if mel b sues for saying you know for running a rumor that she has a third tit it doesn't matter because it was already in print yeah um you can you can make the the you can make a lot of justification of like oh you are suing because it is true and you don't want people to know mm-hmm. i mean you see this with a lot with the royals in the uk yep. and yep. ultimately killed princess diana mm-hmm. um so despite the fact that this film is quite silly, it's not without things to say. There's a degree of truth to it, even if it's not really a deep thing, right? Something doesn't necessarily need to be deep to be true true or authentic, and the representation of the opportunistic and invasive press is a good example of what that can look like. I think that the, the authenticity of this movie, for me, is like personified when the aliens come in because mm-hmm. they're just embracing the weird mm-hmm. and like they didn't need to yeah but they did yeah whether or not they meant to like be authentic or not it feels that way to me of like just lean in it kind of feels like it feels kind of similar to how a child tells a story <laughs> like and then there were aliens why were there aliens i don't, I don't know, know. Aliens. and then there was a bomb yeah it's it's just playful you know like it, it really fun. feels like play and it works perfectly because it's for kids mm-hmm um, so this is another quote from, uh, or this is a quote from Spice World, Constructing Femininity the Popular Way by Daphna Lemish, who writes, uh, the five spices suggest different personality types and five different definitions of femininity. One, childish and cute, Emma is baby spice. She wears her blonde hair and pigtails, favors light cotton, pastel colored short dresses with straps and sports, and sports a gold necklace with the word baby on it. She often sucks a lollipop and presents a blue eyed smiling baby face to the camera. 
Two, Jerry is the spicy ginger. She is the sexy exhibitionist. Her reddish hair and selection of tight, bright clothes, such as corsets, garters, and stockings, clearly portray a quote-unquote slut-like image, which to which her provocative stares toward the camera provide the added touch of a come-on. Three, Melanie B., the only woman of color in the group, is the quote-unquote wild, spontaneous one. Scary Spice, as she is called, has the most untamed, long, curly, dark hair, which she wears as a mane to suit her tiger skin type clothes of tight slacks bras which expose more than the obscure and large overcoats her pierced tongue adds to the image of the independent outspoken quote-unquote rule breaker who is capable of doing whatever is on her mind four melanie c is sporty spice in her workout suits of slacks and exercise bras her straight hair tied back in the modest ponytail and her plain cheerful face she is the girl neck quote-unquote girl next door who happens to have a thin muscled body and a genuine interest in sports specifically soccer and fitness five Finally, Victoria, Posh Spice, is the elegant, elegant, sophisticated, quote-unquote, snob. In her short, tight black dresses and high heels, her shoulder-length, straight dark hair, and her serious, unsmiling posture, she conveys remote coldness, heightened by stories of her aristocratic background. So, obviously, individual people are more than adjective plus spice in their identities, hmm. right? If you were a Spice Girl, what would your spice identity be? Uh, I actually, when my work did the, when, um, this as a coffee chat question... I was emo spice. Emo spice. Yeah. I think that's fair. Emo spice. Who am I? Snobby spice. <laughs> you're right. I am snobby it, spice. It works though because you're a spice, which makes it like not snobby because you're like a spice girl and that's like the least snobby thing. Mm-hmm. But also you're snobby. Yeah, I'm snobby spice for sure. Snobby spice. Pretentious spice. Yeah. Pretentious spice. Sorry, everybody. I'm just emo spice. I'm, I'm, I'm pretentious spice. Snobby spice. Um, the Spice Girls aren't, they are not truly being themselves, right? But rather exaggerated, hyperbolic versions of themselves. If we, if we buy that their Spice Girl identities are extensions of themselves, which I think they are, right? I think they came up with those identities themselves, if I, I remember think correctly. So I know that there was pressure to stick to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so they could not have evolved. Mm-hmm. Um, like, like popular one story of being. Sporty Spice having anorexia because she needed to keep mm-hmm. that very thin body. Yeah. Um, Which is just why she's so thin. Like, there's mm-hmm. she's a woman. Like, you can't, you would have had to be anorexic to keep that body if that's not genetically what you're supposed to right. look like. Um, there is likely an element of truth to each of these identities, but they are played up for the public persona. Um, I think the idea of having these identities is a bit of a mixed bag when it comes to authenticity. On the one hand, it does show that there is a variance to girlhood, right? Not every girl is posh. Not every girl is baby, despite those two being probably the most palatable identities in terms of a patriarchal sense. Like, ideal femininity in in a patriarchal sense probably looks a lot like baby or a lot like posh. Mm -hmm. The others depend, but I think generally speaking baby and posh are the two that are like these are what femininity should look like mm-hmm. um not I'm, ginger or is that too sexy? i think she's too she's too confrontational oh too, you're right because she's she she's the one who's very like girl power rah rah feminism etc totally right um also often called sexy spice yeah uh on the other hand these are some narrowly defined types, and they suggest that each Spice Girl is just one thing rather than being a multifaceted individual. Where is pretentious Spice? Where is Smarty Spice? Where's Smarty Spice? <laughs> I mean, Victoria's kind of pretentious. That's true, but not in the way I'm pretentious. <laughs> but really, though, I'm not like other Spice Girls. It is It is something to point out that there is no, and this is the smart one, mm-hmm. when you think that would be pretty 
easy. Yeah. Especially when they kind of make it out like Emma is the dumb one, but she's not. Mm-hmm. But it's easy to put her there because she's baby. I so. think if any of them are, are the smart one, are coded as the smart one, it's probably scary. Really? Which we'll talk about a little bit more later mm. in terms of how she's constructed in the movie versus... And I think in, in, in the long run, she has the best career, too. Mm-hmm. Um, they all lean pretty hard into the type that they are meant to be. I don't think that that's inherently bad, necessarily. But given that this era is when we begin to see the not, not like other girls thing develop, likely as pushback on this style of hyperfemininity, mm-hmm. I do wonder whether this felt limiting to girls who weren't really like any of them. Me, for example. I, I truly did not identify with any of the Spice Girls. I can tell you in retrospect, I liked Scary a lot and I absolutely had a crush on both Sporty and Posh. Like, I liked Scary because I liked her outfits um, and I had literally nothing in common with any of them, but I sure did love them. Mm-hmm. But I liked, I know that I loved the outfits. I wore platform sandals for a very long time. <laughs> I was an expert at like hiking on a fucking rock with platform sandals. <laughs> I do believe that. Yeah. And I mean. My Olympic sport. <laughs> there is the the fact that the sole black girl in the group is called Scary. We'll talk more about that later. Oof. But oof. Um, this is another quote from Too Much of Something is Bad Enough by Cynthia Fuchs. Um, the sequence is quick. Where previous shots show Mel C making fun of Victoria's cool pose, arranging her hair and sighing, I'm so posh. <laughs> or Ginger shuffling to the camera playing sporty as masculine. Baby looks uncomfortable in her tight pants outfit her eyes barely visible from beneath her hair she slouches and moans are we finished yet and mel b looks ridiculous in a streaked red red wig and fuzzy midriff top flashing the peace sign and saying blah 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 girl power feminism you know what i mean <laughs> a shot of baby follows as she gives up on the whole game Ugh, god she says and slumps off the act the sequence is revealing not because it tracks an activity in which all of the girls lose interest but because this weariness and discomfort are especially pronounced in and illustrated by the swaps between scary and others Blackness is not a masquerade so easily executed by a white woman as Marilyn Monroe is, and feminist whiteness appears to be less comfortable for Mel B than Diana Ross, though to be fair, she seems inconvenienced by the Ross-like red sequin gown, which is too elaborate and static. What is arresting about these revelations, abrupt and unremarked on as they are in the film, is that they reveal so much about the limits of self-expression and plastic identity. So I think the point of this scene, the scene where they are all kind of dressing up as each other for a photo shoot... I think the point of this scene is that you should be authentically you, whatever that you is, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's the message that the film is trying to yeah. send. But it is odd that only Mel B, scary, and Emma, and Emma, baby, seem to be really struggling with stepping into one another's identities, while the others seem to be having fun, or at least are unbothered by it. If we don't look at race for a moment, which is difficult, but if we don't look at race for a moment, maybe we're meant to read that Ginger's in-your-face feminism doesn't work for Scary or that Scary's confrontational style is uncomfortable to Baby. But I don't think that's adequate. Why should Scary and Baby be uniquely affected by the sequence? Why not Posh, who's known to be the most fashion-obsessed of the group? Instead, it's Scary, the only black girl in the group, and Baby, who has to step into the black girl's persona, who are most affected by the scene. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, I think it's true that you can't just swap identities like you'd swap clothes, right? Especially because white icons of feminism are not the same as black icons of feminism, especially when you go back into history and you see how many of the suffragettes were actively eugenicists. Um, But as we'll talk about later, the Spice Girls idea of girl power seems to be a bit post-racial as well as potentially post-feminist. Scary is a Spice Girl, which supersedes any other identity she might have. 
Maybe Scary talks about the experience of being a black woman at some point, but it's not in the movie. And we're not left with any real explanation about why she and Baby struggle more with the identity swapping than the others. It's possible that they really are playing with the identity that you can't simply swap blackness with whiteness to the same effect. But I feel like that's giving the movie undue credit. I agree, because especially because around this time, I believe, I believe, is when the I don't see race was for I don't see color. It was like really popular mm-hmm. um, because because they're wrong. Um, <laughs> but but like just in that scene of like baby feeling uncomfortable and scary stuff and scary not that I mean, that shows you that racism still exists. That's the thing is, it's like, why is why is it those two? And the only thing that i can really see is the idea of blackness i i 100 agree because i feel like the like if you really want to get into it which is what we're doing like the uncomfortableness of being so other uh mm. as like you're not only being an other like the way in which you dress but like your race and a race that is not treated the same and now you're like thrown into a position where it's like not comfortable for a white woman and like i'm sure they're not thinking that consciously but there's a reason they chose those two, mm-hmm. especially especially when you put it with Emma, the blonde, right, the blonde one, um, especially when her constructed identity is that of baby innocence, yes. naivety, like, and then scary, yeah, yeah. Um, so Fuchs says that this scene reveals quote much about the limits of self expression and plastic identity unquote, which I do think is true. It looks ridiculous when the girls impersonate one another because they're not being authentic, even if those authentic identities are still contract constructs to some degree. I think there's something to be said for the intended audience here that that you know they're trying to say you won't be happy if you're trying to be somebody that you aren't. But then why is everybody except Baby and Scary more or less okay with it? They look silly, but they don't seem to be uncomfortable. Like Jerry and Melanie C and Victoria, none of them seem uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, maybe they're just being playful, but why don't Baby and Scary get to be playful in the same way? We know why. <laughs> yeah. Again, if the movie or the group as a whole engaged with race in any way, this might not stick out so much. But the fact that the two of them don't get to be playful in the same way because Baby is impersonating Scary and Scary is impersonating Ginger just makes the scene feel either weird or contradictory, depending on how you look at it. Like, yeah. there's just no good explanation for this for how that plays out. I mean, what it is is it's fun and then uh your internalized racism right shown. Yeah. Um so this is a quote from Vickers of Wannabe, Authenticity in the Spice Girls by Elizabeth Eva Leach. Um this contrasts with the nascent but not yet pronounced characters of the pre-fame Spice Girls in the flashback, tripped and ossified, sorry, trapped and ossified by the persona they are forced to adopt within the context of the Spice Girls, a group fiction that has now taken over their real life. The message here seems to be that as five individuals who are not so trapped, their group togetherness was more spontaneous, more authentic. The limitations of stereotypes conflicting with their anything goes play with subject positioning is addressed throughout the film, notably in the scene of the photo shoot session where they all dress up as one another and then a string of 20th century icons, many nostalgically from the 1960s. The simple message of ordinariness contained in the video of wannabe is no longer credible. They are not ordinary. The world of fame has taken over. We are able to enjoy their flame sorry, enjoy their fame vicariously, but are asked to sympathize in a way that makes us feel comforted not to share in fame's limiting aspects. Spice World, the movie, furthermore implies that the real girls are indeed still ordinary, that they are resisting the way in which fame has transformed their lives and turned them into fake caricatures by remaining true to the group and to their friends. So it's interesting to consider the number of scenes in Spice World about the Spice Girls not as the band, but as a group of friends. 
We've discussed the identity swapping scene, but there's also the flashback scene to them singing Wannabe at a restaurant. And there is the wannabe music video itself, which positions the band as outsiders or newcomers to a fancied party that they intrude on and disturb. Very weird that Baby takes a hat from a homeless man outside of the party, but oh sure. God. It's just like in the back. I was like, what is happening here? Um, their clothes and play for playfulness in the wannabe music video are at odds with the surroundings and they crash the party. Even if they are invited, they skip the guest list. They like throw the guest list up in the air. Um, now that we're some distance from the flashback and the wannabe video, we are seeing them look backward fondly on those times when they were still themselves. They were still scary, baby, posh, etc., but without the requirement to be those things. They were, in a sense, authentically those things. But by the time we get to the movie where they're looking back fondly on things like the wannabe video on their pre-fame existence, which didn't actually happen. That's a fiction. Um, when they're looking back on that, they're looking back on a time in which they were authentically those things, but they are no longer those things in the context of the movie. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Because I'm talking about a level of... It is difficult. It's like fiction and then a level... It's like one level of fiction and then another kind of fiction in a separate bubble and then a fiction within the fiction. It's very Shakespearean. <laughs> there's, there's no, there's, it's just like levels of metafiction happening. Um, it's hard to be as ordinary as the Spice Girls image would like to be seen when you're internationally famous, right? Like the Spice Girls movie, the Spice World, the Spice World, Spice World is in a sense about their own constructed identities and like trying to exist inside of those. But it's hard to be authentically for example posh spice when you're internationally famous yeah and i think that's what these scenes and the music video suggest there are no longer outsiders to this world by the time we get to spice world and something is missing their indiv individuality and their core identity which has been replaced by whatever persona they take on as well as being part of the spice girls like whatever posh spice may have meant you know, in 1996 or whatever, before Wannabe debuted, it means something different in, I think, 1998 when the movie comes out, mm -hmm. right? It's It means something different. It doesn't come as much as of a surprise then that Jerry left before or around the time that the movie came out for home viewing. Like, it seems as though they were feeling trapped by these constructed identities. Did you see the interview where she says why she left? No. She said in one interview that I watched, uh, she left because they wouldn't allow her to talk about breast cancer. Oh, interesting. That I didn't was know something that. that's really important to her. Also, like, why would they stop her to do that? Mm -hmm. um, so this is a quote from Spice World and Me by Eleanor, Eleanor Stanford. Uh, the question always hovering around industry market manufactured pop acts, especially female ones, it's, is the extent to which they're driving their own brand. In Spice World, the girls want us to know that they are fully in on the joke. Do godmothers get stretch marks? Posh asks, do you think I'm always going to be seen as Baby Spice? Emma asks, even when I'm gulp 30. God. The plot climaxes with Posh taking the wheel of their tour bus in her strappy stilettos and saving the day. Despite this convincing show of unity, all was clearly not well in the real Spice world. Jerry quit the band before the movie came to DVD, citing differences between us. There's So there's a self-awareness to some of these jokes that like could be attempts on the part of the filmmakers to make the Spice Girls seem more authentic. Mm -hmm. But also... This is the dude who wrote from Justin to Kelly. How much credit do we want to give him? I mean, I've never seen the movie. <laughs> I guess that's true. Maybe so I can't tell you. Really it might good. be like Grammy worthy. Grammy worthy. Gram <laughs> you know what? It's a musical. <laughs> I said what I said. I said what I said. Maybe it was the acting was bad, but the music wasn't. <laughs> As we've discussed, authenticity is a tricky thing when it comes to public personas. The Spice Girls were meant to be every girls, but also aspirational, right? You were meant to be mm -hmm. like, I'm like that, but also to be like, I can be like that. Mm -hmm. They were meant to be easily consumed, but also to be individuals. 
The movie in some ways complicates this by showing that there are things that they miss about their lives before they became the Spice Girls. And that ends up being more authentic than the constructed identities. It's also like a great way to be like, connect with an audience even more to buy in. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Which will bring us to the last section. Do you have anything else to say about authenticity? No, I think it's like we've been talking a lot about lately. And I think it's a really interesting topic, especially in with you can't take out capitalism from it. But capitalism heavily influences it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really interesting. For sure. Spice Girls is a great, great, a great way way to examine that. Um, So let's talk about feminism. Um, But first, we're going to talk about capitalism. You can't um, talk about one without the other. Yeah. Well, you can talk about capitalism without feminism. Yeah. But it's hard to talk about feminism without capitalism. I agree. Uh, some so, may not agree. But some may not agree, but I agree. Uh, I feel like we can't talk about Spice World without talking about feminism, and more specifically about the commercialization of feminism. There have been a lot of claims leveled at the Spice Girls' feminism over time, ranging from their feminism isn't real feminism because it's shallow, to their feminism isn't real feminism because it's commercialized, to we shouldn't be talking about feminism to children anyway, right? They kind of got it on all sides here. Um, So the first question I want to address here is the idea of commercialization. Obviously, we've talked about how the band was essentially built by the music industry. We didn't even get into like how literally built by the music. Yeah. Indi- these these girls did not know one another before no. they started the band. Same with like, I almost said Hanson, but those are brothers. Those are literally brothers. In sync and yeah. Backstreet Boys, One Direction. They're all manufactured. One and Direction pretty publicly so because they were on the X Factor. What's really interesting is um you like all those bands like 98 Degrees, all that stuff. They are all almost exclusively back in that time were launched soft launched in the uk and mm. if they succeeded in the uk they bring them over to the u.s mm-hmm. which i thought is weird that's interesting i have no idea why i'm sure it has something to do with like the press there is really like hardcore and so it's like it gets their name out there more mm-hmm. i don't know but i i've watched a lot of like in <laughs> sync documentaries so <laughs> documentaries right about about this time period and pop pop music specifically and it almost always soft launched in the uk first mm-hmm. and That's if they really didn't succeed they typically we don't know who they are mm-hmm. and there was like o-town too the one that was yeah. on the reality yeah, show you literally like making, making the band right making the band yeah i watched that one loved it liquid dreams good song <laughs> it's true um hansen truly was the outlier yeah i really liked hansen i only know one song by them yeah i like their i, I listened to their first album um where are we at I think they're still making oh. music. I think you're, yeah, they were on The Masked Singer. Um, so again, the first question I want to address here is the idea of commercialization. Obviously, we've talked about how the band was essentially built by the mu- music industry and girl power became a big part of their marketing. So does that mean that their idea of feminism must also be inauthentic since it's for marketing and consumption? So I'm going to quote an essay called In Defense of Disco by Richard Dyer. This essay you fucks. want any reason to talk about disco. I do. Disco is fascinating. I was reading through this and I saw that and I was like, of course. Of course. I'm going to talk about disco. We'll have to at some point do um, that one movie. Disco. About disco from the with John Travolta. Oh, I've never seen it. I haven't either. It'd probably be perfect for yeah, you. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Um, is the commercialization of disco. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know for sure, but. Um, so this is a quote from In Defense of Disco by Richard Dyer. Um, it is assumed that capitalism as a mode of production necessarily and simply produces capitalist ideology. The theory of the relation between the mode of production and the ideologies of a particular society is too complicated and unresolved to be gone into here. But we can begin by remembering that capitalism is about profit. 
In the language of classical economics, capitalism produces commodities, and its interest in commodities is their exchange value, how much profit they can realize, rather than their use value, their social or human worth. This becomes particularly problematic for capitalism when dealing with an expressive commodity such as disco, since a major problem for capitalism is that there is no necessary or guaranteed connection between exchange value and use value. In other words, capitalism as productive relations can just as well make a profit from something that is ideologically opposed to bourgeoisie, bourgeois society as something that supports it. As long as a commodity makes a profit, why does it matter? So we'll break this down a little bit because I realize that Dyer is using some like academic terminology yeah. here that as might an be academic does. unpleasant to listen to. Um, So Dyer is talking about disco and capitalism here rather than pop music and feminism and capitalism. But the points are similar enough. One of the criticisms the Spice Girls faced was that their feminism couldn't be real because it was created to sell them and their merchandise. Dyer makes a few important points in this particular quote. One, that we assume that capitalism must produce art that promotes capitalism itself. But Dyer points out that capitalism is first and foremost about profit, as in dollars. Um, It doesn't care about the actual value or worth of whatever the commodity is, only what kind of profit it can turn. Marvel movies. (laughs) So if something like disco associated with queer and black communities can sell, capitalism is going to make use of it. It doesn't give a fuck who it's associated with. It cares about making money. The same goes for ideologies that may be opposed to capitalism. If feminism can make money, capitalism will absorb it and sell it back to us. And it did. Yeah. Even if art is explicitly anti-capitalist, it can still be created by capitalist structures, not just because the people creating the art are themselves not capitalists, but because capitalism literally only cares about profit, not about what it is saying. So yes, capitalist art, which I think we can say that the Spice Girls fall into because of how they were manufactured... So, so yes, capitalist art can still have feminist values because the goal is profit, not to promote capitalism. It can be both, right? Like art can both promote capitalism and be capitalist in nature, but not all capitalist art must promote capitalism. Um, the main goal of capitalism will always be increasing profit. That's how we get things like, and I'm going to use two examples of things I haven't seen. Um, that's how, but that's how we get things like Andor or Mary mentioned the new Ant Man has like a bit about the positives of socialism. Oh yeah, it's like actually capitalism. I'm sure a lot of people watching it didn't feel this way, but it literally says like talks about so like literally uses the word socialism. It's great. I loved it. I the movie wasn't very good, but I sure did like that. Yeah. So like that's how we end up with things like that, both of which are produced by Disney, one of the hugest capitalist companies in the world that like is gobbling up everything in the world in the name of profit. It can produce something like Andor, which from my understanding pushes back against like the prison industrial complex. And it can produce something like Ant-Man, which talks explicitly about socialism as like a a force for positive gain. Yeah. I Um, would also point out that Andor did terribly. It's objectively really good. Everyone mm. who watched it loved it. I didn't finish it. But like, I think... I do wonder whether that has to do with Star Wars fatigue. That's... Well, I don't know. Mandalorian did well. Mm. So I just think it's interesting when that is the, the, that's being pushed in that. Mm-hmm. And, um, a, a big critique sometimes of Star Wars is actually, um, people having to face the politics of Star Wars <laughs> despite it being a story of politics. Yeah. Um, and so I'm curious if, if it went, like, I think Rogue One went just far enough where people don't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. And I think Andor pushed that. Mm. 
But yeah, I don't know for sure. I've heard nothing but good things about it. I've heard it's spectacular. It was, it, uh, when I watched it, I need to go in not thinking I'm watching a Star Wars movie. Yeah. <laughs> I like Star Wars movies, silly. <laughs> so, but the, the thing is that this is how we get things like this produced by one of the biggest, most capitalistic countries or countries. I'm, fuck, might as well be. Yeah. One of the biggest, most capitalistic companies in the world producing art that is challenging on a social level. Um, Capitalism does not care if it actively promotes ideologies that threaten its existence because it cares first and foremost about profit. If people mm-hmm. will pay money for it, it will produce it, be- especially because capitalism is-, is interested in gobbling up whatever money it can, even if in the long term it's not going to work out. That is what bailouts are for, baby. Like, it is just interested in, like, I mean, you can look at things like oil companies, right? Oil companies have known for decades that fossil fuels are detrimental to the environment and they don't give a fuck no. because they're like, we're not going to live to see that. That's that's a problem for our kids. That's a problem for our kids' kids. So let's burn the earth down in the name of short-term gain. Get short-term gain. It's true. and they've, they've indoctrinated and brainwashed people to think that's a good thing. Right. They care more about the short-term monetary goal than about the fact that eventually, due to their actions, we won't have a habitable planet, right? I This one girl on TikTok, I was... Uh, this was a while ago. She was talking about how her dad doesn't like the fact that Taylor Swift um, bought her masters and recorded because it makes people lose money. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. This reminded me of that. Um, wild. So feminism and anti and anti capitalism aren't like inherently the same thing. Although my personal feminism includes anti capitalism. But the idea here is similar. Just because the Spice Girls were created by a capitalist industry doesn't undermine the ability for the band to be feminist, especially because it's comprised of individuals, right? Um, one more time. Capitalist capitalism does not care what ideologies it promotes, only that the ideologies it promotes make money. Wow, Disney made an anti-capitalist film is therefore not surprising when you think about it in terms of profits, which is why we should not praise Disney. They just want your money. I think a really good example of this in real life is Disney's fight with DeSantis. Uh huh. I think it's more people support inclusivity than don't. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think. No, th- no, that's demonstrably yeah. true. And so it was an easy choice for Disney to say, yeah, we're woke. What are you gonna mm-hmm. do about it? Because they're gonna win. Also, mm-hmm. like DeSantis is something like constitutionally completely illegal, and he's wildly unpopular. And he's yeah, he's he's sinking real hard. But like, there's a reason they have they haven't even fought that hard, right? They haven't even fought that. Like, okay, so not to get on a tangent, one of the things that had happened was DeSantis was like, I'm gonna take over. I'm not gonna go into all the history, but DeSantis wants to take some of the land and he's like, maybe I'll put a low-income housing on it. Mm-hmm. And Disney came out and was like, we're already planning on that. Like, oh, we're gonna do that. But it's not because they're wanting, right. like, to do something good. It's because they want to get the people that they hire, they still want their money. Mm-hmm. And then there was, uh, they were planning on moving all the animated, all the animation and the um, Imagineers over into Florida. They currently live in Disney. It was very unpopular. Everyone pretty much knew when Iger came in, he was not going to do it. And then he announces after all this, hey, we're not going to do that. So it's Florida loses a billion dollars. But they they weren't going to move. Right. They weren't going to do it. It, it would have been terrible for Iger to do. It would have because people love him already. So like, yeah, they did those things. But for what purpose? Yeah. Right? Like, <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't to stick it to them. It's not about the goodness of their hearts. That might be for some people a uh, positive side effect, but it is not 
the guiding reason. I think the the thing that you can, the biggest thing you can give Disney, like, yeah, you did it to stick it to them, is when they completely ripped the, all the power away from the um, the board that DeSantis took over. Mm-hmm. That was fucking hilarious. Yeah. That, I mean, they needed to do that, obviously, to keep autonomy, but that was fucking hilarious. <laughs> and they're, they they didn't, hadn't already planned on that. And yeah. these other things they had already planned on doing. Yeah. The the point here is is that we shouldn't praise Disney for being anti-capitalist or whatever, for putting out Ant-Man, Quantumania, or whatever the name of the movie is. We shouldn't praise them for that. We can say the individuals who work on these films are the ones who are thinking about anti-capitalism. Disney is not. Disney think- Disney is thinking, how can I get those anti-capitalist dollars? I remember... I hear anti-capitalism is really hot with the kids these days. How do I get their dollars? I remember when Coco came out, there was some people who were asking for a boycott because i think one of the producers was like came like he was exposed as a bad person mm-hmm. uh, it like, was the, it was the pixar guy that's right and so people were like hey boycott this boycott this is the movie coming out and people who were working on it were like please don't because marginalized people actually fucking worked on this mm-hmm. and like i understand what you're doing but if you boycott this you won't get it again mm-hmm. <laughs> so it is it is it is a fine line and very difficult mm-hmm. um where you put your money matters and unfortunately sometimes you gotta put it somewhere yeah um so this is another quote from the same essay in defensive disco by richard dyer uh i am not now about to launch into a defensive disco music as some great subversive art form what the arguments above lead me to is first a basic point of departure in the recognition that cultural production under capitalism is necessarily contradictory and second that it may well be the case that capitalist cultural products are most likely to be contradictory at just those points such as disco where they are most commercial and professional where the urge to profit is at its strongest Third, this mode of cultural production has produced a commodity, disco, that has been taken up by gays in ways that may well not have been intended by its producers. The anarchy of capitalism throws up commodities that an oppressed group can take up and use to cobble together its own culture. In this respect, disco is very much like another profoundly ambiguous aspect of male gay culture, camp. It is a contrary use of what the dominant culture provides. It's it is important in forming a gay identity, and it has subversive potential as well as reactionary implications. So Dyer is not at all talking about Spice World here, right? This essay predates Spice World by two decades, at least. Um, but he could very well be talking. But he could very well be talking about it, right? The discussion is not meant to point towards Spice World as being subversive art, though it's weird and interesting. I don't think it is particularly subversive. Subversive. But as Dyer points out with disco, it may be that the place art is most contradictory to capitalism is where it intersects with profit. So disco is manufactured and professional because it was hard to produce disco without expensive equipment like synths, as opposed to something like rock music, which is typically seen as more subversive because you can walk into a store and buy guitars, right? You can't walk. I mean, you can walk into a store and buy synthesizers, but not all of the equipment necessary to make disco. Um, And yet, and yet, despite that, disco has been embraced and created by subversive groups, right? Um, there's a feeling of contradiction there. How can capitalism promote, you know, quote unquote, dangerous ideologies, like in the case of disco, with um, being gay or being black? Well, because it cares about profit, right? It doesn't give a shit who's consuming it. It only cares that those people consuming it have money to give them. Similarly, the Spice Girls, which they are not as subversive as the groups associated with disco, but bear with me here. Um, You can't have the Spice Girls without a capitalist art structure. Mm -hmm. In this case, the record industry, because you need the recruitment, you need the production, you need the marketing, etc. The Spice Girls would not exist outside of a capitalist framework. Not at all. 
Dyer argues that disco was taken up by groups, particularly gay people, for whom it likely wasn't intended, contributing to that feeling of subversion. So it's not that the art itself is subversion, subversive, but rather that it becomes submersive to some degree. Subversive, not submersive. It becomes subversive because of its association with queer culture. I don't think that's the case with Spice Girls, who were largely taken up by the intended audience of young girls and derided by everybody else. But there is a similarity there, that both Disco and the Spice Girls were embraced by a group that is seen as non-serious and therefore associated with that group, and therefore associated with that group, um, which is often reviled in popular culture. Mm -hmm. I also like the connection to camp here, which the Spice Girls do have to some degree. Oh, for sure. It's it's hard to associate with camp with something manufactured, especially because their identities are part of the package, right? But in a way that's sort of similar to what we talked about in our Magic Mike XXL episode, the Spice Girls almost have a drag thing going on with how they perform their individual feminine identities. I think that the their outfits are, I don't know this for sure, but I, I have a feeling that their outfits are some one of the things that they really did have mm-hmm. like autonomy over. And it makes sense because like some of the outfits they wear are not like conventionally attractive to right. men. Right, yeah. Um, and, but they are to cool women. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, many drag queens have drawn inspiration from the Spice Girls. Uh, and in the same way that disco was a manufactured genre seized upon by a quote unquote undesirable group, there's an article from Grammy.com that talks about how the Spice Girls were often popular with queer youth, especially because mm-hmm. their big personas in opposition to patriarchy marked them as outsiders. Hmm. Even if it was manufactured, they still had that as part of their identity. That appealed to people who seized upon them, even if the music wasn't, you know, quote unquote, for them, and even if it was manufactured. The seizure of something from the mainstream and a wholehearted embracing of it can make something camp. Um, And I'll link to that article in the show notes. It just wasn't something that necessarily needed to be quoted. Um, So we've established that something can be subversive or contradictory to the dominance of capitalism, even when created as part of the capitalist machine, as the Spice Girls were. But that's assuming they were feminist. Does that argument hold any water? Hmm. So this is from Interrogating Girl Power, Girlhood, Popular Media, and Postfeminism by Michelle S. Bay, who writes, This post-feminist view of girl power centered on, centered on style is seemingly shared by commodity feminism, which redefines feminism as, quote, a style, a semiotic abstraction, a set of visual sign values th- that say who you are, unquote. More specifically, post-feminism aligned with commodity feminism as is seen as a weakening of conventional feminist social goals through an aesthetic depolitici- depoliticization that, by focusing on individual style, fetishizes feminism. Additionally, despite post-feminism's non-contradictory unification of feminism and femininity, post-feminism is thought to to inherently involve an ideological contradiction. Women use autonomous control over their bodies and appearance to build a construct that will eventually be objectified by the male gaze. Thus, according to Goldman et al., this feminist search for value and the meaning of women's em- emancipation through sexuality and bodily appearance constitutes pseudo-liberation. Hmm. So it's a lot. What Bay is arguing here is that post-feminism views girl power as aligned with commodity fem- feminism or feminism that weakens the goals of feminism by focusing on aesthetics. Um, this form of feminism depoliticizes the goals of the movement because it becomes more about wearing the right shirt or looking the right way than it does about actually doing anything with feminism, right? Yeah. Um, Bay goes on to say that post-feminism suggests that feminism and femininity are now unified and that the control women have over their bodies and appearance is used to construct an image that can be easily consumed by men. Therefore, feminism that centers on emancipation through sexuality and appearance is not true liberation because it is still about constructing an identity that can be consumed by men. 
make sense so far? It totally does. It makes okay. me, I, I'm hearing this argument more and more that women don't want equality. They want liberation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we can see aspects of this in the girl power espoused by the Spice Girls. Obviously, since their audience is primarily young girls, they're not talking about sexual liberation in the way that Madonna or somebody similar might. But in having these different identities, some of which are more risque in dress, Ginger and Poshma specifically, they are suggesting that you can dress however you want and still have girl power. The issue I see here is that, yes, you can have girl power and you should dress however you want. But because of because the version of girl power the Spice Girls emphasize here leans post-feminist, simply telling audiences that you can dress however you want and be powerful doesn't meaningfully engage with any of the issues that complicate that, like mm-hmm. patriarchy or white supremacy. Um, of course, children need to hear that they are powerful, especially together in friendship and solidarity. And I don't know the easiest way to teach them about patriarchy, but rallying around girl power with no explanation as to why is not it. Well, I would argue that if you're using, if the audience is young girls and a girl, like I'm thinking about a young girl in school who's being bullied, she, for being a girl, mm-hmm. it does feel empowering to be like, well, girl power, fuck you. Mm-hmm. So it, it, like, it does work for me. I under, I totally understand and I agree, but like, it's hard to, for me to like, be like, yeah, it doesn't do anything. Well, like, they're kids. No, no, no. I, I agree on that front. I think that the, I, the, the girl power espoused by the Spice Girls doesn't go far enough because I think it should include you can dress however you want. And if somebody gives you shit about it, that's on them. Yeah. You should be empowered to wear whatever you want. Right. If if a boy, you know, touches you without your consent because of what you're wearing, that's their problem. Mm-hmm. You have the right to wear what you want. It doesn't go there. It just says you can wear whatever you want. It never engages with the potential fallback i think if they did it would be bad not not like bad but like not like oh it would be it would be bad if the pushback people they would get i think why which is which is why it doesn't go far enough for me because feminism is not meant to play nice with patriarchy right it's it's not meant to do that yeah so when it doesn't push that boundary when it doesn't make people upset for that reason it's not good enough feminism for me that's why girl power to me doesn't go far enough it could be empowering on an individual level absolutely but for me, it doesn't go. You need that extra context. Is what you're saying? Well, it needs it needs to be boundary pushing. Like for me to call feminism it, is boundary pushing. exactly. Okay, feminism is not status quo. Therefore, if it just if it just plays nice with the status quo, then it's not feminism to me. So, do you think that Spice Girls not feminism? I think that the Spice Girls individually could be feminist. I don't know well, that because the, they're manufactured. So yeah, I don't know that. And I'll talk a little bit more about the complications of this later, but. I don't. I would probably not call the Spice Girls feminist. I mean, I I wouldn't. But you know, but you know that about me. Yeah. You know, I don't call you, media feminist. Could be like pushing boundaries feminist.com movie, and you'd be like, that's not feminist. I'd be like, no, stop. Um, the movie has men everywhere that control the Spice Girls, but they don't seem particularly bothered by that. They don't even really draw attention to it. Um, at worst, that feels like an acceptance of a sort of boys will be boys mentality or an acceptance of patriarchy. Without pushback, it seems like Spice World is saying, yeah, the world is policed by men, but flirt a little and be yourself and nothing bad will happen to you. See, when I watch it, I'm like, boys are really dumb, aren't they? Aren't <laughs> I they mean, really fucking dumb? I mean, that's part of it. But at <laughs> the same so time, fucking stupid. But at the same time, like the Spice Girls are just like content with it. They don't push back on it at all. In effect, that's encouraging audiences to play nice with patriarchy, likely because girl power post-feminism seems to suggest that patriarchy is over. And now these are just like artifacts of like, it's just like, oh, there's a truth to the fact that men are in control and men are stupid. 
therefore there's nothing to be done about it is this kind of like men are from mars women are from venus which was very popular at the time if i remember correctly um bullshit this is another quote from too much of something is bad enough success and excess in spice world by cynthia fuchs um Derided as the bastardization of Riot Girl, originally intended as a specific assault on all that seems quaint and retro in Spice World, originally supposed, uh, originally, quote, supposed to stick in the mainstream's craw, unquote, girl power also offers alternatives to status quo sexism and low expectations for girls. It is even thinkable that the compromise and commercialism offered by Spice World are not the end of feminism. As Joy Press writes, the transformation of girl power into a rotating MTV product or advice columns in Cosmo Girl isn't just about surrender and retreat into a sugary haze. It is also possible that the images of singer-songwriter girls like Fiona Apple or tough hip-hop chicks like Even Pink or even Britney Spears and other even younger Spice Girl descendants might, quote, expand society's ideas about what is acceptable and what is possible for young women, unquote. So girl power is a mixed bag as far as being a promotion of feminism goes. On the one hand, it gives big capitalist media the veneer of progressiveness. Think about how people praise the MCU for a blink and you'll miss it so it can be removed for international audiences for romance, or how there was a brief period of time of quote unquote female reboots that like paid lip service to feminism but didn't really challenge anything. Yeah. But on the other hand, these can be real gateways for people. Mm-hmm. Even a broader down. Mm-hmm. Even a watered-down girl power feminism could be an introduction to actual feminism. Like, the Spice Girls weren't my thing, but Pink was. Yeah. I wouldn't say Pink made me feminist, especially because her mid-2000s brand post-misunderstood was very not like other girls. And trust me, I didn't need more of that. I was already deep in my not like other girls fake <laughs> phase. Um, but regardless, Pink did showcase an alternative way of being a girl. And that led me to other musicians that spoke more to the kind of girl I was than something like the Spice Girls. There's value in being a gateway. Everybody has to start somewhere. And something as massively popular as pop music, as pop music groups, has more reach than a DIY Riot Girl zine, even if I personally <laughs> would love for more people to pick up DIY Riot Girl zines, right? I, I would mean, love that. It was a gateway for me 100 billion percent. Absolutely. Uh, I think as feminists, we can embrace the gateway being something like the Spice Girls and try to figure out a way to build a bridge from whatever that gateway is to the more inclusive, deconstructive feminism with teeth, right? I think for me, it was really important that my mom did have those discussions with me. Mm-hmm. Like, despite my mom, I don't, I wouldn't say my mom fully, like, understands the, like, complexities of feminism, but mm-hmm. she was able to have those decisions, of, those conversations of, like, just because you're a girl doesn't mean you can't do this or you're mm-hmm. just as smart as the other boys, things like that. And I think that's important when you're having like, right. When your kid's like girl power, well, ask the kid, like, what does girl power mean? Yeah. What does that mean to you? Yeah. What is, you know, what, what is girl power to you? Yeah, that I think stuff those are- needs to be talked about as well for it to, it can be a gateway, but if you don't have anything else to like bridge it, mm-hmm. it, it, it won't be. Right. Um, this is another quote from Spice World Constructing Femininity the Popular Way by Daphna Lemish. This inclusion of feminist discourse, albeit at the superficial cliche level, in an extremely successful image, is is in and of itself an interesting phenomenon. Such incorporation of the quote-unquote women's lib reference systems has been featured in various popular texts such as in television series and advertising campaigns. Among them, the famous You've Come a Long Way Baby for Virginia Slim Cigarettes. These texts have been charged with turning the feminist sphere against itself by reinforcing women's dependency on capitalistic patriarchal systems. The inclusion of audience tastes in cultural products is a well-recognized economic strategy, as Fiske argues. What is striking in the Spice Girls' example is the inherent conflict between the message and the reality. As the movie cynically indicates, the Spice Girls are handled, programmed, and marketed by male agents who are in control of their industry as well as the images it presents. In the movie, the man in control is a high-class, rich, and mature, quote-unquote, father figure who denies them any time off from work. 
This is very much an imitation of the successful American series of the 70s, Charlie's Angels, presenting three young beauties as talented policewomen who blindly follow the unquestioned authority of a male superior with whom they have never whom they have never even met. The Spices, as mischievous girls, disobey the male authority figure, spontaneously running away to do what, quote unquote, what's in their heads. However, they are back just in time to fulfill their obligations as performers, teetering along the thin line between obedience and resistance. And I think this is where things become a little disappointing for me as a viewer. I don't expect the world from a goofy Hard Day's Night parody written by the same man who wrote from Justin to Kelly, right? I don't don't expect anything particularly subversive. But in the same way that the 70s Charlie's Angels and the early 2000s one to an extent, which I'm actually going to talk about along with the 2019 one uh, on the next What We've Been Up To because I watched the 2019 Mm -hmm. one. Uh, But in the same way that those have superficially powerful women acting on the orders of a man spice world points toward the fact that men are everywhere in the spice girls business but doesn't really do anything with it right it just it says hey there they are <laughs> i think it would have been easy to have the story involve them actually getting rid of the, all these creepy dudes but considering that one of them was representative of the screenwriter's brother uh kim fuller the screenwriter is the brother of simon fuller the spice girls manager <laughs> um perhaps that's why you know Or maybe because they weren't interested in challenging the presence of men, just sort of winking at it. But what's frustrating is that all of what's frustrating is that that winking is all it is, though. They fired Simon Fuller and in the movie, he's just kind of annoying, right? Like he doesn't he seems just um, so ridiculous. He's insignificant, right? Every man is this like kind of temporary obstacle and they never use their power as a unified group to fight back against it because they still show up and play their show in the end. Because, of course, they're first studious to the fans, right? So, of course, they're going to show up and play the play the show at the end. But and men are dumb, so they don't need to be listened to. Yeah. But it's just like you could have gone a little further. Like they could have, you know, interacted with these men and like had some consequences for them and they don't. It's one of those things that like really... Like, I really do feel like Josie and the Pussycats is sort of a refinement of this movie. Um, Because in the end, like, you have the big thing at the end of Josie and the Pussycats has Josie, you know, taking off the headphones and everybody takes them off. And then she puts it back on and they do it too. And she's like, (laughs) you know, wear what you want, but do it for you, you know, not because not because of me. And then you have um, Alexander Cabot III taking all of his clothes off. And one time I tweeted that every day I become closer and closer to being him at the end of the movie. And it's true. Um, so that's, that's where it becomes disappointing to me is like, you can see the places where they could have really pushed at it. Right. And we don't know the reasons that they didn't push at it. They being the filmmakers, I don't know how much I mean, control the Spice Girls had. The but. closest thing that they pushed back is the outfits of the dudes, which still ended up being asses chaps because <laughs> they wanted them to just be in like almost nothing. And they're yeah. like, we don't want to do that. Yeah, but then they still had the screen. The, the costume designer said, can I put them in assless chaps? And I think the the people who were in charge laughed and she's like all right i'm doing it that's a yes <laughs> you didn't say no <laughs> um so this is a quote from girl culture revenge and global capitalism cyber girls right girls spice girls by Catherine driscoll um the spice girls cite figures like madonna and nina cherry in pop music although they also refer to their mothers and sisters in feminism golden's book on the spice girls phrases this as hippie mother and academic big sister but some of their selections are less obvious like margaret thatcher famously mm-hmm. called the original spice girl Although this claim has had the effect of placing the Spice Girls as more conservative than they might otherwise be thought, this association worked primarily in its context as a localizing narrative. Thatcher is represented as rescuing Britain from losing, it, losing its identity, globalization, and Americanization. 
The Spice Girls refer repeatedly within and outside their lyrics and vocal styles to their accents, to their local identities. They won't sell out like the Beatles and move to America. They're proud to be British. So this brings me to a point that's been annoying me since I first heard the Margaret Thatcher is the original Spice Girl <laughs> anecdote. Not to be a real bitch here, to use a anti-feminist term, but not to be a real bitch here, but I do genuinely want to interrogate whether conservative political and social beliefs are compatible with feminism. Um, but first, we'll get there. But first, it's interesting that, as Driscoll points out here, the Spice Girls' Britishness is key to their identity. They aren't just a girl pop br- group, right? They are a British one. And their British identity is literally worn on their sleeves. Yeah. <laughs> um, this was no doubt in due to the, uh, the, in part to the rise of what was called Cool Britannica, a resurgence of optimism, economic prosperity, and the rise of the new Labour government under Tony Blair, which if you're not familiar, as I wasn't, um, new liberal or new Labour was a sort of neoliberal government that arose in the post-austerity um, post thatcher movement it was just basically like they're trying to make england really cool um (laughs) and that's all part of the spice girls oh the uk became like almost like pop culture nationalist during this time like it was all about british pop culture um it was similar to the 60s where the uk flag became this like fashion thing along with the beatles that kind of stuff um you also see this channeled in austin powers right like that's what they're playing with um, and that's all part of the Spice Girls' shtick, which I think does explain a bit about the Margaret Thatcher thing, which is part of why the girl power feminism thing feels so hollow. Not all feminists, especially in the 90s, were interested in interrogating nationalism and colonialism, but some of them were. I don't want to be ahistorical here. Of course, there have always been feminists who interrogate colonialism and nationalism, um, but in the mainstream, maybe not so much. And the Spice Girls' brand of girl power is super far removed from the ideas of post of colonialism and of nationalism, right? It's not interested. Like, it's not even interested in race. It's just interested in girl power. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a quote from Spice World Constructing the Femininity the Popular Way by Daphne Lemish. Lemish? Another manifestation of this contradiction is expressed in their outspoken admiration of former conservative British Prime Minister and Margaret Thatcher and the legendary Princess Di. These two choices, of all possible women role models, are far from reinforcing a quote-unquote rebel image. On the contrary, they cater to conservative social trends, emphasizing women's limited choices framed by patriarchal society as either the quote-unquote iron bitch or the quote-unquote melancholy victim. Aware of the possible negative connotation feminism may still conjure up in wide social circles, yet feeling the need for a new image, they themselves declare, quote, feminism has become a dirty word. Girl power is just a 90s way of saying it, unquote. And then another quote. Of course I am a feminist, but I could never burn my wonder bra. I'm nothing without it, unquote. Feminists, yet detaching themselves from the negative stigmas of bra-burning, angry, ugly women. Feminists, but women who are, quote, nothing without their bras. The bra, the symbol of second-wave feminism, has regained its status as a sex symbol. Even as feminists, girls are nothing without it. So even when they're talking about feminism publicly and explicitly, as opposed to the less provocative girl power, they're talking about, like, representations of female power in the monarchy like Mm -hmm. even if princess diana was an exceptional member of the monarchy in terms of like interact like one of the big examples being like her willingness to be photographed hugging people with aids you know even if she's an exceptional member of the monarchy she is still representative of a colonial force right she still comes from money she's still yeah. yeah she's not my you know she's not my feminist icon for whatever you know good things she might have done for the world that just ain't it for me, you know? She's definitely a romanticized fantasy. The melancholy victim, yeah. right? Um, so they're still talking about these representation of, 
of female power in the monarchy and needing a wonder bra, right? Like, which, like, sure, I'm also not burning any bras, but neither were the feminists who were said to be burning them. Yeah. It's a myth. I'm sure somebody somewhere burned a bra, but it's not actually associated with any feminist movement in history. It is simply not real. Yeah, because then you have to buy the bra. Bras are expensive. Bras are really expensive. And, like... I hate it when I'm going up and down the stairs and I, I'm just, like, bouncing. I don't like bras at home, but I don't like going out without them. And I'm sure as hell not going to burn one. Mm-hmm. I must be a misogynist. You are. Yeah. So what we have here... Because I hang out with you too much. <laughs> so what we have here is an alignment with monarchy and a pop culture misunderstanding of actual feminism. That doesn't bode well for our reading of the Spice Girls as feminism as anything more than shallow branding. But there's another wrinkle to their feminism, too. The post-feminist, seemingly post-racial girl power world can also be quite racist. Uh, we've talked about this a bit earlier, but we should also look more more generally at Scary Spice and how she's constructed as the sole black woman in the group. So another quote from the same essay, Too Much of Something is Bad Enough by Cynthia Fuchs. Um, Spice World does not put up much of a fight against such prescriptions, though Mel B's blackness is clearly central to the arguably racist construction of her persona as Scary Spice, which includes Airsat's jungle and animal print costumes, hair coiffed to look wild, and her standard photo pose with mouth open to reveal her tongue piercing. Again, an excessive Spice Girl performance simultaneously absorbs and reframes the stereotype. While Mel B's participation in a predominantly white girl group is hardly a definitive answer to the combinations of racism and sexism that shape many lived experiences, it affords one alternative model to standard issue uh integrative hierarchies showing mutual respect and affection among the girls and an apparent color blindness among fans and observers so on the one hand having an all-white pop group would be bad yeah right we can agree there but it's also not great to have the sole woman of color more specifically a black woman be the scary one whose thing is wearing animal and jungle prints um It may very well be an extension of Mel B's personality, and she should be allowed to express that. Mm -hmm. That's something I want to make abundantly clear. I'm not criticizing Mel B here. Mel B's allowed to do whatever the fuck she wants. She's girl power, baby. Girl power. Girl power. Girl power. Um, But when we're talking about something that is to some extent constructed by the music industry, you have to question how much of it is Mel B and how much of it is the industry she belongs to. Mm Mm-hmm. An obvious answer here would be to have more than one woman of color in the group, especially another black woman, or to at any point address race. Maybe that's not something Melby is interested in, which is okay. She doesn't have to center her entire pop star existence on her race. That would be limiting in a different way. But someone at some point in the big Spice Girls marketing extravaganza ought to have realized that the combination of her blackness, her persona as Scary Spice, and the jungle animal print was not a good look. And again, if Mel B is cool with it, it's not my place nor anybody's place to tell her that she has to stop or change her persona, right? But as part of the girl power marketing machine, it's not great. Um, Another quote here from Spice World, Constructing Femininity the Popular Way by Daphne Lemish. Related to female bondedness is the disturbing, disturbing contradictory theme of race, so subtle and unspoken, yet clearly visible and disturbing. The one woman of color, Melanie B., is cast in the role of the wild one. She is the one to break the rules. She is the one to expose large portions of her naked body. She is the one to wear animal skin. She is the one with the pierced tongue. The literature on the fascination of the white gaze with the black body suggests that framing Melanie B. of all the spices as the untamed wild creature cannot be dismissed as coincidental. Uh, The admiration of the sexual nature of the colored person combined with the fear of the savage puts Melanie B. at the forefront of such a critique. This might be particularly relevant since the reception study of the Spice Girls among preteen girls presents evidence of girls' perception of Melanie as a victim of sexual violence. 
Taming the Wild, so it seems from young girls' perspectives, is achieved through the ultimate form of male domination and control, rape. It is particularly interesting to note that the movie Spice World, the most recent of all texts analyzed, seems to make a special attempt to downplay this role in comparison to earlier texts. Melanie is often portrayed in big baggy clothes covered from head to toe, her unruly hair tied back in small restrictive curls. In many scenes, she wears glasses and speaks in a calm, pleasant tone. One is left to wonder what brought about this clear change, possibly a growing awareness of the racist connotations of the original image. Full disclosure, I am not sure what they're talking about here with regard to seeing Mel B as a victim of sexual violence. I do not know to what that is referencing. I didn't get it and I didn't investigate any further because I was like, this is long enough. You know, (laughs) I don't know what they're talking about there. But (laughs) to return to the actual point here, I honestly think of all the Spice Girls, Scary ends up having the most personality in the movie. Uh Uh-huh. In terms of like feeling like a multifaceted person, which is good, I think, to attempt to counterbalance the scary black jungle woman thing. Whether that attempt is successful or not, I think is up to the individual and is up for debate, especially because it's a pretty big hurdle to overcome. Like if you have a racist construction of a character, which Gary Spice is, even if she is also Mel B, it's really hard to just counterbalance the racism out, you know? Um, I don't know. I don't feel great about it, but I also don't want to police what might be self-expression, only how that expression is monetized by corporate structures. That's what bothers me. I'm sitting here thinking very hard about this conversation and like how, because Scary Spice was my Spice. Yeah. And how I, like, why did I relate to that? And I don't know. She's the coolest one. She is the coolest. She has the coolest hair. It looked like Sailor Moon. Mm-hmm. And she had the best outfits and she was outspoken and I always have to have the last word. <laughs> it's true. And you, I know a lot of people who Scary Spice is their favorite. Yeah, for sure. I think like as a person who wasn't really into the Spice Girls, like Scary Spice definitely seemed the coolest. To yeah. Me. But I, I mean, it, maybe that too is part of the fact that she was different. Like she's racialized. She's you know she's constructed differently yeah. than the others she's she, yeah a bit not grittier but like she has more texture mm-hmm. she's less palatable yeah and then you think you're saying earlier about how ginger is um up like loud outspoken as well but she doesn't get looked at that same way mm-hmm. there's a there's a fetish fetishization of yeah. blackness mm-hmm. in our culture and i think that might be part of why scary with so many people's favorites yeah i i I mean it's pretty obvious like going back to what we were saying of like um when they did the photo shoot there's a reason that scary spice looks the way they but scary spice looks and a reason that baby spice the blonde blue-eyed one looks like is is infantilized yeah there's reasons there yeah and we all know what they are right (laughs) yeah it's it's again i don't want to police like mel b's personal self-expression but we i think we should be like wary of how it's constructed as like uh commercialized art right Mm -hmm. if if mel b wanted to dress exactly as she did and act exactly as she did that is her prerogative yes she is not to blame but i am cautious about how that was monetized and manipulated by the corporate structures that controlled the spice girls that's that's where my discomfort comes in yeah not with mel b specifically she can do whatever the fuck she wants um So we've covered how something that might be at odds with a power structure can still exist in that power structure. And we've covered some ways in which girl power slash feminism is undermined by the things Spice Girls say and do in Spice World. So let's return to that question. Can feminism coexist with conservatism being a Tory or similar? Because we've talked about, you know, the the integration of politics and that kind of thing. And I'm going to answer for myself because I can really only speak for myself. But for me, 
feminism has to be inclusive and it has to be based on liberation. So it also has to be anti-racist, anti-capitalist, anti-ableist, and so on. It is incompatible with those things for me. You cannot be racist and feminist to me. I 100% agree. Um, By my definition of feminism, a person can't be conservative, they can't be Tory, they can't be any of those things, and also be feminist. But I'm just one person. When you look at historical waves of feminism, those beliefs have been part of them. Mm-hmm. Eugenics was a not insignificant yeah. part of first wave feminism, which was primarily about the, the right to vote. Um, so the first wave was notoriously racist. The second and third waves are often transphobic. So while it's incompatible with my feminism, it isn't necessarily incompatible with historical feminism, right? But, and this is an important point, there's a reason those are no longer the dominant modes of feminism, yeah. right? We should have moved past them. <laughs> But not everybody feels that way. There are people who are conservative who consider themselves feminists. I disagree with them, but those people exist. Are yeah. they valid feminists? I say no because I feel that feminism is at odds with things like being anti-abortion, white supremacist, or transphobic. They are not welcome in my feminism, and I, in fact, believe they are actively detrimental. I and think- they can say that they're none of those things. They often do. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- but being conservative means you vote conservative. Mm-hmm. And, like, you can't get around that. Right. You can't get around. You just can't. Yeah. You just can't get around it. Yeah. Or, I mean, you could say you're not for those things and vote Democratic, but th- are you a conservative still? <laughs> it's It just doesn't seem to to work for me. Yeah. The 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 ideas that are... Con- that are in, that are like involved in conservatism and being a Tory. And look, I don't know if it's like Toryism or whatever, but <laughs> the thing, the, the aspects of that, including, you know, being neoliberal or pro capitalist, like those things do, they cannot coexist with feminism for me. Yeah. Like they can't, they are not part of my feminism. So therefore, I don't consider conservative feminists to be feminists. I'm like, you're using feminism wrong. Yeah. But historically, those have been parts of feminism. Uh, so, yeah. you know, like, technically, maybe they are feminists, but they're not part of my feminism. <laughs> it's very complicated. Yeah. I don't think that is quite what's going on with the Spice Girls and aligning with Margaret Thatcher. So there's a famous clip from the Eric Andre show where Mel B is a guest. And he asks her if if she thinks that Margaret Thatcher had girl power. She responds, of course. And then he asks, do you think she effectively utilized girl power by funneling money to illegal <laughs> paramilitary death squads in Northern Ireland? And she responds, I don't know about that. I guess the question is, from what we know about the Spice Girls' version of feminism, known as girl power, did Margaret Thatcher have girl power? I 100% believe. Was she the original Spice Girl? I think so, because I think, especially having after having this conversation, um, and if you're not going to define girl power, girl power, she was in charge. She had mm-hmm. power, literal. I agree. So I think that absolutely is true. Yeah. Because you don't have enough definition to it. Yeah. I, I don't think that we can definitively answer that on all of their behalves, but what we now understand about girl power does change things a bit. Mm-hmm. Also, for what it's worth, you know, in the Spice Girls' events, not all of the Spice Girls agreed with the idea that Margaret Thatcher was the original Spice Girls, Spice Girl, and it's really Victoria and Jerry who identify as Tories. <laughs> um, so with what we now understand about girl, cha- girl power, that does change things a bit. It's more complicated than, than it seems when you consider that the definition they're working with versus our definition. Mm-hmm. I don't find it feminist, but I think we knew that already. I think that by the Spice Girls' definition and the type of, you know, quote unquote feminism or girl power that they promoted. Yeah, I kind of think Margaret Thatcher did have girl power. Like, yeah. And that's not that's not me saying, yay, Margaret Thatcher. 
That's me saying, uh, girl power. A really, a really good example of like letting every woman in power be feminist. Hire more women guards. <laughs> well, um, when is it the, the woman who got the last woman who was elected as a, um, Supreme Court is it Amy, 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 a- Amy Coney Barrett. Yes. Um, when that happened, oh, she wasn't the last one. She was the second to last one. The last one. No, one. anyway, it doesn't matter. There's a new, there's, yeah. Whatever. Amy Coney, <laughs> Girls Have the Fun of USA tweeted out like, yay, a woman. I don't remember what it was, but it was like, congratulations. And they got ripped apart. Yeah. <laughs> because. <laughs> They shouldn't have done that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they eventually took it down and, um, put up a new tweet saying, um, if you don't, if you see something you don't like, keep scrolling, essentially. And like, that was so dumb of them to do. Mm-hmm. That was so stupid because how can she be a fucking feminist? How right. can she, she does not align with what the Girl Scouts in most cases are pushing. She, so people like that, like Margaret Thatcher, for example. They aren't even necessarily pro-woman. Yeah. They're pro-themselves. Yeah. But when we're thinking about how the Spice Girls promoted and the Spice Girls machine promoted girl power, yeah, by virtue of being girls, they had girl power. Mm-hmm. That doesn't... And again, I want to make clear, that's not me being pro-Amy Coney Barrett. That's not me being pro-Margaret Thatcher. They can both fuck off into the sun. Yeah. What I'm saying here is that girl power itself is so watered down and removed from feminism that, yeah, unfortunately, these awful people can fit into it. And that's why that's why I am in favor of specifics. I'm in favor of feminism with teeth. You know, yeah. uh, this the girl power thing, which uh, will end on a more positive note. <laughs> I promise. The girl power thing can have benefits, especially to individual girls. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's not enough. And. Children are capable of processing yeah. information. They're capable of processing something more complex than girl power. Yes. I, like, I truly believe I, that. I agree as well. It, it, it's not without benefits to be simplistic and to just empower girls on the basis of being girls. Like, I don't want to say that that has no benefit whatsoever. But I, we can do more than that. And they, they could have done more than that. And they didn't. And that's part of why girl power fails for me. Now, I'm an adult, right? I'm 34 fucking years old. The message of girl power <laughs> is not for 34-year-old me. As a kid, maybe I would have been like, yeah. Well, I, was. I wasn't for whatever reason. But um, You hate because you're a misogynist. I'm a misogynist. <laughs> um, for whatever reason, it, it, it just didn't grab me. And it did me. Yeah, it did you. And it was beneficial for you. And that's why I'm not going to be like, well, actually, it was terrible. And if you liked it, you're a bad feminist. It's more so that like, just because it was meant for empowerment, its general message, it's too general. It has Margaret no definition. and Amy Coney Barrett do not get to be included in my definition of feminism. They're actively thrown into the trash. <laughs> right, yeah, like they, they harm people materially they are only interested in their own selves and people exactly like them so they do not get to be part of my feminism and fuck right off yeah and that's why i take issue with the idea of girl power and being like actually the spice girls were super feminist because they talk about girl power they some of them really fucking like margaret thatcher like i can't which is so weird to think who liked margaret ostensibly they kept voting for her but like it's wild to me that anybody would like 
Margaret Thatcher. You know what's really wild to me, and sometimes I think about it and can't believe it. Hmm. Um, what's her name played Margaret Thatcher and the mom and and um, sex education. Oh, Jillian Anderson. Yeah, the yeah. fact that she played both. That's wild. <laughs> That's feminist. <laughs> That's feminism. Um, so this last quote here, I said we're going to end on a positive note, and I will. Uh, this last quote is from How the Spice Girls Manufactured Girl Power Became Real by Alicia Haridasani Gupta and Jennifer Harlan. Um, another frequent target of criticism was the group's message of girl power, which was promoted not just in their music, but also through their mini marketing deals with brands like Pepsi and Chupa Chups Lollipops. Uh, activists raised concerns that the band was exploiting feminism for commercial ends. Many commentators were, quote, were, quote, very conscious of how feminism and pro-women sentiment was manipulated and weaponized, particularly by the media, unquote, said Andy Zeisler, who co-founded the feminist pop culture magazine Bitch in 1996. Rest in peace. Uh, the same year the Spice Girls made their debut. Against a backdrop of the punk riot girl movement, sorry, of the punk riot girl movement and the women-centric Lilith Fair, both of which use music as a platform to advocate specifically feminist political and social changes, quote, the Spice Girls perhaps felt like a step back, unquote, Zeisler said. But the notion that the girls' message was, by virtue of being broadcast commercially, inherently hollow, now seems short-sighted. Quote, it's, I think it's possible to say on the one hand, the Spice Girls and Girl Power were this very contrived marketing technique. And that's true, unquote, Zeisler explained. Quote, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't very real for the girls themselves or for the audience. I grew up with feminism as an irredeemably dirty word. No one wanted to be associated with it. So just the optics of having a group of women talking about feminism in a different language, making it accessible, that's really important, unquote. Yeah. I think this last note here is an important one to return to. Yes, the Spice Girls are imperfect feminists championing championing imperfect feminism, if they can be said to be championing feminine feminism at all, which I think is an arguable point. I think that girl power is distinct from feminism. I don't think that they are synonyms. But they were a group that brought girl power and occasionally feminism to mainstream conversation and to the consciousness of their fans. In an ideal world, we'd have a better representation of feminism and have people bring it to attention, which I think we are getting closer to now in music. We have bands like the Linda Lindas, right? I love them. We have, um, I'm trying to think of another example that's more like pop. I was <laughs> seeing Queen, but that's not pop. Uh, I'm out of touch with pop music, guys. Even Olivia well, Rodrigo. Well, you could say lover era of Taylor Swift. Sure. Yeah. Like we have we have some of these. The man. Yeah. And on that note, um, Beyonce's If I Were a Boy. Yeah. Formation. Beyonce's a good, yeah. Um, we have more pop acts bringing these things to the to the forefront, right? Um, and But as much as I want the Spice Girls to be better about it, I think that there is still value in bringing even the idea itself to attention at all, which they were successful at. It's imperfect. You might even say at some point it's bad. <laughs> I think that saying Margaret Thatcher is the original Spice Girl is bad. It's bad. I think that's bad. Um, but as Mary has talked about, that was important to her upbringing, right? Yeah. It was important to her to have access to this idea of girl power, which is then emphasized and celebrated by the women in your life right yes, yes so that's good i think it can be better i'm not going to hail the spice girls the unit as yes. ideal feminists especially because again i think conservatism is incompatible with feminism you could bring this this argument to the other thing i said that was really influential is mary poppins and mm -hmm. the suffragettes she was an absent fucking mom she and was she, a terrible mom. She was meant to be a joke. Yeah, and she was movie. a joke. But 
She had a cool ass song, cool mm-hmm. ass outfit, and um for a very long time I didn't realize she was the mom. <laughs> but I'm for real. <laughs> She's just some lady. I really didn't realize she was I thought he was a single father. Mm-hmm. And that like I really did for a long time. Anyways, but that same thing can be she was terrible. Right. She was terrible. Yeah. We can take inspiration even from things that are imperfect. I we, mean suffragettes were terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like they were going for the right to vote while actively oppressing yeah. women. They of color. are girl power. Yeah. <laughs> the suffragettes are. I mean, they have to actively believe that black women are not Mm -hmm. women. Not all of them did. (laughs) Not all of them did, but a lot of the really big ones. Enough of them were. Um, It was a worry. Yeah. There were some really incredible black feminists like uh, in that day too. Sojourner Truth being one of them. Um, But at the same time, like the the white suffragette movement, much of it was built on continuing to oppress black women. Yes. So the point is here. I don't think the Spice Girls are all good or all bad, which if you're listening to this podcast for the first time, should 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 know that that's how a lot of it is. Yeah, you should just know we don't come away with conclusive statements here. We just say it's not all good. It's not all bad. We're a horror movie. We're a horror movie. <laughs> um, no good stories. No good ending. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I find I find them very interesting. And I think this was like a really I, I really liked that this prompted me to really really get into like what is incompatible with feminism to yeah. me what is compatible with like how do you create art under capitalism like all of that kind of stuff this led me down some really interesting like lines of thought also that ex- the essay about disco slapped <laughs> a while ago we had in this conversation always has always stayed with me and i actually think about it often i think it might have been when we were doing just in the pussycats but it might not have been there was a question of like the very base of this, of what we're having right here is, is the Spice Girl specifically and this, this, um, specifically this time period of feminism, is it good or bad? And I'm like, I don't care. It's good. It made me who I am. So I was really happy with this because it really made me think about it. Mm-hmm. And I still am like, it still made me who I am. Yeah. <laughs> and that can be a good thing. I think in the same way that in the individual Spice Girls likely had feelings about feminism that may align more closely with my own. Um, the Spice Girls, the product, the corporate unit did not. And in the same way, girl power, the ideology may may be bad, but girl power on an individual level can be good. Um, and that's it, it's like it's just complicated, but that's what it is. Right. Yeah. Like girl power could be um, empowering for individuals, even as it was used to sell Chupa Chups and <clears throat> and Pepsi. Yeah, you just gotta resell it. <laughs> you just gotta be you gotta be a, a girl boss like you gotta Mary, be a girl boss like I was in uh, like literal second grade. Yeah, uh, that's yeah. what it was really all about. That's- was Mary becoming a girl boss? <laughs> I invented girl boss. Mary invented girl boss, and I'm- it's all thanks to the Spice Girls. And truly, if you think about it, I was like subverting capitalism. Spice girl boss. Spice girl boss. Exactly. Girl boss spice. Yeah, as you. But I do think I was eventually caught and made fun, not made fun of. I was caught and told I cannot do it anymore. <laughs> I don't weird. remember that, but I remember that's probably what happened. Oh, okay. Also, I'd also like to point out this really important fact. When I was younger, I had a Spice Girls comb. My mom still has that and uses it every fucking day. <laughs> every day. You cannot see that it's Spice Girls anymore. You can see a very small part. Very, you'd have That's to know. So funny. My mom, to this day, it is her comb that she uses every single day. I got that. 20 years not 20 years ago i got that a long fucking time ago actually yeah 20 years ago ago. 
sounds about right. My mom still uses it every fucking day. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. Your mom is putting girl power in her hair every My day. My mom is ultimate girl power. Yeah. It's true. It's true. Do you have anything else to say about the Spice Girls? No, it was interesting. Yeah. Uh, so that's it for this episode. You can find us online at fakeycrosscast.com. There's a link in the show notes. Um, that has all of our past episodes. If you like this, you might consider The Witch. Yeah. Uh, Magic Mike XXL. Yeah. Practical Magic. Yeah. Josie and the Pussycats. What else did I mention during this episode? Twilight. Twilight, yeah. Any of those. If you like this one, you probably like those ones. Yeah. Um, thank you to Emily June for working on our transcripts. Um, consider dropping us a dollar per month or something on patreon then you can get our bonus material um i have one to put up next week which is uh, all i did was cut that section where we were casting the great gatsby <laughs> with pop stars out and I, that's all i'm gonna say that was about, a bad choice that's all i'm gonna say about that <laughs> um, but you can find that for just a dollar about the patreon as well as all of our other bonus material Next time, we're going to be talking about Interview with the Vampire. I started it this morning. It fucking rules. Interview with the Vampire is good. I didn't... I I think I read it when I was in high school and I couldn't get into it. Like, I, if I remember correctly, I read the whole thing, but I didn't really like it. Mm-hmm. But I started it this morning. I'm like, this book rules. Everybody's right. <laughs> it rules. <laughs> I'm excited to start it. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to rewatch the movie and to watch the TV show, which I've heard nothing but good things about. Um, also, let me tell you, if you type interview with the vampire in on Giphy, those are the horniest goddamn gifts I've ever seen in my life. That was, I've seen nothing from the show except those gifts and how fucking horny they are. So that'll be something to discuss. Get ready for a horny episode. It's time. You bet. I was talking about this in our discord, which if you like, if you like us, consider joining our discord. Just shoot me an email at contact at fakegeekgirlscast.com. It's a fun time in there. It is a fun time in there. Um, I was thinking about, I posted this in the discord that time way back when when you first said horny on the podcast mm. in our um, episode on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Uh-huh. And it was a can of worms that we have never closed. <laughs> we Now we say horny so much. It was literally like, you know, when you see like Google Trends and it's like a word yeah. appears and then it sk- skyrockets. Yeah. That's what happened with the word horny. You you broke the seal on horny in that episode and the seal has never been replaced. A horny's got a horn. A horny's got a horn, <laughs> as we're always saying. <laughs> and on that note... <laughs> I catch you on the flip side. Or the spice side. The horny side. The horny spice side. Where's horny spice? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>